Yo, man, it's a lot of brothers out there flaking and perpetrating, but scared to kick reality. Man, you've been doing all this dope producing. You ain't had a chance to show them what time it is. So what you want me to do? I'm expressing with my full capabilities, and now I'm living in correctional facilities. Came up with this poche, by the way. Yeah. Genius. Genius. The poche, is that the tea made of guava? Yeah, it's got guava, uh, like hawthorn fruits, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh... (laughs) <laughs> the dude that was telling me about it didn't know what they were called in english so we had to look it up okay but uh yeah guava that some sugar cane what else i know there's other things i'm not doing this justice but it's delicious whatever's in it that's poche right yeah poche or you know if you're a white dude from iowa like i am you call it give me some of that poche there <laughs> Well, you know, uh, we actually do have at least one listener in Ecuador, so I think no shit. Yeah, maybe right. maybe they're enjoying some some poche as well. I don't know if it's a like general like Latin American type treat or if it's more region specific though. I have no clue. All I know is it's tasty, and uh, whoever whoever makes it and lets me drink it, probably an all right person. Well, let's just say hola muchachos, uh, bienvenidos a la compost bin of history podcast hola hola me llamo jared <laughs> uh, me llamo james so we were just talking a little bit about uh, a recent cdc report that came out in august that basically was talking about like mental health trends in people during the covid19 pandemic in americans and um, one of the the things that really jumped out to me was this fact that in the 30 days before this survey was done um, in July, out of the respondents between ages 18 and 24, fully 25% of them were considering suicide seriously in the 30 days leading up to that that uh, yeah. survey. You know, of the ones polled. Of the ones polled, yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> while I completely understand the sentiment, kids, uh, you know, you always can kill yourself later in like 10, 15 years. You might as well stick around a little while. <laughs> You're young still. Uh, your body doesn't ache every day. Right. And, uh, you know, you haven't been paying bills for 12, 13 years. Um, you can't have fucked up that bad in life <laughs> if you're a teenager. You know what I mean? Well, but being a teenager is hard, right? And, you know. Oh, of course it's hard. Yeah. You got to fucking put up with your parents. Yeah. And being a young adult in this day and age, dealing with like climate change, uh, the compound really you have like three compounding, you know, like crises. You have like the economic crises, the environmental crises, and the public health crises, right? Yeah, and those are just the ones going on outside of your life. Do you remember <laughs> being a teenager? There's like a different crisis every week, man. Right on top of yeah, the 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 social family problems, work problems. Uh, all that stuff totally sucks. And, oh, yeah. you know, I guess I brought this up to Jared because I, <laughs> I saw this and I said, we should, we should do like a, a holiday special in the dialectic spirit of the compost pile about suicide and, um, talk about suicide through history and different, different species, because it's by no means unique to humans, right? As, as nothing is right. Anytime you would say that something is unique to humans, I would say you're probably not talking about a real thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, plants, they love to commit suicide. Uh, you know, so in my research that I've already done on this, it seems like it's mostly like bacteria and animals of various types that commit suicide. 
Okay, I'm very interested to learn about these suicidal bacteria. Yeah, but I'm sure there must be some plants that commit. I've definitely had some like house plants commit suicide. That <laughs> I'm just like yes, that was definitely their choice to die. They had nothing to do with outside conditions. As as uh, for humans with depression, um, it's all your fault um, if you're depressed. Um, your environment didn't contribute to that whatsoever, and you should feel bad about yourself because that helps you get better. Well, and that, that's why I think we should we should talk about it is to kind of dispel some of those myths, right? Because it is all about environmental yeah. conditions. And oh yeah, <laughs> and, you know, as somebody that grew up uh, a pretty chunky red-haired kid with a bowl cut and buck teeth um, who went on to college to study, uh, you know, like climate change and things like that, and then had to move back in with his grandma at the age <laughs> of about twenty-four uh, to deal with the debt incurred on yeah. that journey. Um, I, Wait, did, you know, did, I know a thing or two about some depression. I'm, I'm really surprised that any of that would result in any kind of anxiety or grief. I mean, like, oh, no, I had no problems whatsoever. Um, it didn't affect my life at all. It didn't lead to like substance abuse issues. Um, none of that, you know. Yeah. And of course, that's what we're seeing with this uh, CDC survey is that, yeah, substance abuse issues, uh, traumatic stress related disorders, and yeah, suicidal ideation are all, all, all kind of on the rise because of the stresses brought on by the COVID nineteen pandemic. So I think though that yeah, we need a few more days to kind of get our notes together on that. And I don't know, do you have anything else you want to say on that, Jared? Um, no, I think we'll just talk about it at a later date. But uh, you know, yeah. Just, uh... Don't kill yourself before Thanksgiving, at least. You're going to get drugged to something by your parents, and who knows, maybe you'll get COVID and die in a week anyway. Right. I mean, and that's the, that's the other thing, is that the holidays is always, like, correlated with, you know, an increase in, like, suicide rates, because people feel like an expected, like, need to be happy, and they're not happy because of, again, all the shit going on. Yeah. Um, a word of advice, though, uh, like, bottling your feelings up is not helpful. Exactly. But... Also, what's not helpful is telling your feelings to someone who doesn't understand or maybe care, uh, especially the people that you might pay to go sit in a room with uh, this disinterested person that <laughs> is going to listen very carefully to what you describe, fill out a little checklist, and then send that to somebody that's going to give you some very powerful pharmaceutical drugs. Right. Do not, do not tell those people, um, unless you're having like major mental problems, uh, you're just going to make things worse for yourself. Yeah. And that's the thing is that a lot of the, the like societal responses is very unhealthy as well. <laughs> well, we treat it like a neurotic mother who like learns that they're right. Kids kid like broke his toe at school and she comes and like burns the school down mm -hmm. right? accidentally because she's trying to help her, <laughs> her child. Yeah, so I guess we just wanted to put this out there to say, you know, yeah, it's a tough time. Um, our hearts go out to all of our listeners out there because we're struggling. We know that, that you're struggling, too, in different ways and degrees and capacities. And um, you're not you're not wrong to feel distressed and despaired. You know, it's it's no, it's no, because no. of things that are outside of your control. It's not some fault in you. It's not because you didn't work hard enough. You didn't study hard enough. No, that's all bullshit. You know? Yeah, and you know, maybe you didn't study as hard as you could have, and maybe all that <laughs> shit has a little bit of truth to it. But that's no fucking reason to yeah. get too bent out of shape either, you know? 
Yeah. Um, what the fuck? What are you even learning at this place that you're turning all this homework into? Because I went to the American school system. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, I always get so uh, I, I get like seasonal defective affective disorder during the holidays. But um, I just always think about like my garden next year, you know, and yeah, I'll get some suicidal ideation or something. But I always kind of try to just recognize that for what it is and say, you know what? Um, that's that's not that that's a normal thing it's not necessarily going to help me or anybody else though and so yeah i kind of think about like you know spending more time outside hikes that i want to do you know camping trips uh visiting my friends and yeah like you know gardening projects and that kind of thing yeah you gotta you gotta find some shit in your life that makes you happy and then you gotta think about that from time to time yeah when you get the time try to do some of it yeah put, put it out there in the material world and get your hands dirty yeah I mean, you can be sad, you can be depressed, what, uh, sad's a bad word, but you can, you know, you can be depressed and anxious about what's going on mm-hmm. outside and all that stuff. Um, I just challenge you, maybe don't let it, like, completely consume you and ruin your life. Like, uh, rumination and stuff like that, that's all, Yeah, that's all par for the course with something like depression. But, I mean, things suck, but things are also kind of funny. Yeah. If you, if you, uh... I, if you look at the world <laughs> as like, I don't know. Well, right. What I'm really saying is go watch seasons two through 10 of the Simpsons, <laughs> absorb that worldview, and then look at the world with new eyes <laughs> and, uh, you know, just have a little fun with it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, how about we just leave it off there? That's our little compost bin of history, public service yeah. announcement. I think I can kind of make a little bit of a segue to our topic. Well, one really depressing thing that has definitely, you know, not been great out here on the Colorado Front Range has been the the wildfires of this fire season in 2020, which are still not out entirely. There's a few of them that have been contained, but uh, a lot of them are actually still still burning um, and consuming the, fuel load. Not that I've been really paying attention to like politics for the past week, mm-hmm. but uh, even if I was. Would I have any idea that these fires were still going on if I was just like a normal person? Yeah, probably not. Um, because there hasn't been a, a normal big... person in Iowa. It's right. like unavoidable if you live near them. But well, there hasn't been a big blow up in a while, in about a month now. So that's what usually kind of draws attention. But the point source of uh, forest fires, right? <laughs> If if a forest burns down in the woods and no one's there to see it, did it really burn down? <laughs> well, uh, of course, we actually were able to see it, as we'll talk about. Um, when you were out here, we were able to witness one of the, the big, like, blow-up events. Oh, yeah. It kind of changed my life, honestly, seeing that. Um, it, it sort of... It was very depressing, it, you know. Um, I always... Yeah. There's the, there's a scene in the Cormac McCarthy novel The Road where they talk about the constant presence of like smoke and ash in the air and then like the fires burning on the hillsides in the distance that you can just constantly see. And that was basically the last 2 months in northern Colorado, you know. And for people who live here, that's a very depressing, alienating thing on top of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the economic depression that we're that we're heading into, and again, all of all of the little about, problems man? of the people's lines, lives. The lines going up, baby. <laughs> yeah, they're excited. You know, you all you have to do is say the word vaccine, and the stock market will jump like ten points. It seems like. 
<laughs> yeah, don't worry about how we're going <laughs> to store and cool all these things. But yeah, so uh, I'm going to title this episode Northern Colorado Wildfires of 2020. But really, we're going to kind of address this. Oh, we need something with more panache than that. Oh, okay. Tentatively. <laughs> well, people usually find these based on the title is the thing, so. Yeah, so we need something that's going to grab people's attention. Okay. I'll, yeah, we'll we'll see where the episode takes us. And maybe okay. something will jump out. But, so, the main topic is going to be kind of my local natural disaster, though, the Cameron Peak Fire. But as we explore that, we'll talk about the other big events in the Northern Colorado wildfire season. And talk about how this is kind of a case example for a lot of the rest of the United States in the wildfire season this year. Or the western United States, rather. So... You know, I, I live in uh, Loveland, Colorado, in the Northern Front Range, and our local disaster this year was the Cameron Peak Fire, which has been the largest wildfire in Colorado state history, burning mostly in Larimer County. Uh, it started over three months ago now, 101 days, and it is, as of right now, 92% contained. As of our recording on November 23rd, it started August 13th. And as of November 23rd, it's 92% stopped, essentially. All right. In a certain manner of looking at things, it's a very sustainable fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about like future trends at the end, but it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for, for, you know, the next decade, right? <laughs> probably not. I mean, that area of forest probably can't catch on fire again for a while. Well, maybe for a few years, but of course it doesn't burn uniformly. And what comes back is often species that are even more fire prone than what was there beforehand. So, so the, some of those nice chaparral species. Exactly. What we're going to see is a shift in the ecosystem, especially at lower elevations in the Rockies, as that kind of dense forest uh, is basically retreating into higher elevations where again, it can still burn, but what comes instead is like more medium sized fuels, shrubs and other evergreen trees that can still dry out and spread wildfire. And in fact, the Cameron peak wildfire burned over several areas that had been burned 10, 20 years ago in other wildfires in Northern Colorado, particularly in the Comanche wilderness area. So what this doesn't mean is that, you know, there's just, oh, we got it out of the way and now it's not going to happen again, right? What I'm hearing is that forest fires are a renewable resource. <laughs> if only we could monetize the forest fire in some way. Oh, no. <laughs> just, uh, there's definitely people working on that. <laughs> so... As of right now, it's burned the Cameron Peak Fire by itself, largest in state history, has burned over 208,000 acres. And um, for many people of northern Colorado, the, the big felt effect of this has been at times over the last, you know, October, September time period, near constant black smoke and air quality warnings over northern front range cities of Loveland, Fort Collins, Longmont, and down in Denver occasionally. Yeah, when I was out there visiting you, um, <clears throat> when I got home, there was so much ash on my aunt's car that I borrowed that I had to take it through the wash twice because they didn't get it all off the first time. 
Right. We think about the the new social uh, relations that form around these types of events. And one thing that I, I guess, maybe naively, I never thought I would do, but have found myself doing quite frequently during these times is relying on the, the fire and smoke air quality map, um, which you can access on your phone. And basically every day I would be for a good portion of, of August, September and October of this year, I was checking that app to see if it was basically safe to go outside. If I could go outside and breathe the air reasonably, because of course it was constantly smoky. You couldn't go outside without, you know, experiencing it but there would be times when it would be actually physically unsafe for anyone to be outside doing any kind of activity oh i believe that uh if anybody's ever tried to put up hay um and you're watching (laughs) the rain you're watching the rain forecast uh you definitely understand pretty quickly that uh the so-called experts Mm -hmm. you know they make a pretty good guess most of the time but they're wrong quite a bit too right air quality sensors have been installed all over the the northern front range in particular oh, yeah so this is automated too there's all kinds of there's problems <laughs> all kinds of shenanigans that goes on with automated systems yeah there's problems with it you're kind of relying upon a system that is uh trying to trying to quantify an environmental variable that's not by its nature dynamic independent upon things like pressure systems winds local topography and so it could be highly variable place to place but all you can do is go online and say, okay, there's this little sensor that's two miles from my house. Is it safe, moderate, or unsafe? You know, essentially is what it comes down to. And you just kind of have to go off of that and trust it. But at the same time, yes, as you said, Jared, you have ash falling on things. You have <coughs> um, black skies in the middle of the day at times. <coughs> and just kind of this like weird, like, uh, I think when we tried to... De- record this earlier i described it as like a fallout 3 color palette which oh, yeah. <laughs> which pops up quite frequently where you kind of have like a greenish orangish sky and then just like generally like darker and muted colors you you basically walk around expecting to see a super mutant or a ghoul because it wouldn't be yeah. out of out of context <laughs> <laughs> and much like fallout 3 um you know <laughs> There are glitches abound sometimes in some of this, <laughs> <laughs> some of these, uh, whatever you would call them. So what we're setting out to do here is basically to tell the story of the Northern Colorado fire season and kind of put it in a, in a broader context of climate change. This is a kind of the spiritual successor to our climate change versus forest management episode. And, uh, we're going to really, apply some of that knowledge in the context of this year's fire season here. So of note for this uh, 2020 fire season were basically a few events, particularly the weekend and week that Jared actually came to visit me here in Colorado around October 14th, when there was a huge wildfire run of the Cameron peak fire that was fueled by 70 mile per hour straight line winds. Yeah. I was on the top of Pike's peak that day with the 70 mile an hour winds. That's right. Yeah. It was incredible how powerful <laughs> those were. Like I can't imagine if I was in a forest that was on fire when those were going through ripping through those canyons. Oh yeah. So that obviously is what spreads these in you know, really big dangerous ways. And it was around that time that another fire started on the other side of the continental divide near Granby, Colorado, home of the Killdozer, 
uh, if you've seen the documentary Tread. And that wildfire, within a week, blew up to become the second largest in state history and actually jumped the Continental Divide, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But basically, this, this wildfire would threaten the homes of almost a quarter million people on the Colorado Front Range. Would has undoubtedly, just because of the number of people living here, has caused uh, deaths due to the um, impaired air quality and uh, just visibility in some areas. And Now, is, is that figure, um, like, people actually live in these places? Or how many of these are, um, like... <clears throat> So recreational or like vacation spots. So um, I'm saying that, you know, in, in the Northern front range, just between like Longmont and Fort Collins, you have a, you have basically a quarter million people who live there. Right. And in terms of the actual damage that was done to homes, you had roughly, I think it was a little over 400 structures destroyed by this one fire. Now, interestingly though, only 10% of the homes that were actually destroyed were primary residences. So that should okay, give that's exactly what I was asking. And, and that should give you an impression of kind of the class <laughs> dynamics of this wildfire. Most of what yeah. is being burned is like vacation homes and stuff. Well yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I I know more than one person that owns like a vacation property out there in Granby. Yeah. And a lot of those if they didn't get burned over this year, it's just <clears throat> a matter of time until they get burned over. Well, I hope you're not listening, Ben. Um, (laughs) You might want to sell. Yeah. uh, So there's a reason that it was so cheap, I think. Right. Let's talk about like rebuilding at the end of this and kind of why that's a that's a fraught narrative. Right. Okay. Well, after a disaster, it's important to rebuild. Right. Well, we can tie it in with COVID-19 and the whole build back better thing and how that's kind of a fraught narrative as well. Can we not on second thought? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about just how bad of a slogan that is? <laughs> it's a terrible like, slogan. Who came? People got, somebody got paid a lot of money to come up with that, didn't they? Well, and they totally ripped it off. Of course, Biden, Mr. Plagiarism, it's been, they ripped off like 18 other campaigns, you know, from the recent past with Build Back Better. <laughs> they just like put a bunch of slogans in an algorithm and it came back with that. This is, this is the one that tested highest. Yeah. But the guy punching those slogans into the algorithm probably got paid handily for it. So, <laughs> Oh, maybe, I don't know, man. IT works getting less and less profitable. Well, and, and so to, to circle back on, on the threat to like residential areas, like real threat to like primary homes, people who don't have like a vacation home or a cabin in the woods that is being burned over. Uh, Yes. The people that are like irrevocably being affected by this. Right. And this isn't just like a dent to their stock portfolio or their assets. Right. But actually a huge, a huge personal loss again, like, you know, not at least 20, 30, 40 people lost their primary homes due to this fire. But I just want to point out, though, that there was another, during all of this, particularly that that time that you were out here, Jared, there was other wildfires popping up due to those winds. And of note, I would point out the uh, Left Hand Canyon fire near Boulder, Colorado, which also started that same wind event time period. Well, we saw the uh, the Cameron Peak fire that night. We saw where it had like jumped to a ridge that was right, like a mile and a half away when it was windy. Yes. Yeah. We just saw like a new little part of the fire crop up. Yeah. So when it's so windy and so dry like that, 
basically the the split between in in a lot of these areas already because of development the split between the wild forest ecosystem and the urban development interface is not so clear cut and when you have crazy wind and really dry conditions it's actually pretty easy for a wildfire to start as a even as a residential fire and then move yeah, suddenly see, become a wildfire just... If they just clear cut on the edge of all these forests, you won't have to worry about any of the houses burning down. That's how we're going to make forest fires profitable. Somebody is going to have to be contracted to clear cut all this timber. Well, and that's what they're doing right now, right? (laughs) They're out there cutting down even all these trees that haven't been burned, but are in areas where maybe like are near roadways that were maybe uh, now soil has been destabilized because of other trees that got burned. And so... (laughs) You almost have to do like the ecological equip- equivalent of these fires and uh, yeah, to stop the fire. Basically, you have to like do the same thing the fire is doing to stop it. Right. Just with a slightly different method. Yeah. So but the, the thing is, is that these these fires can rapidly move between wild and urban interfaces. And because of their extent, their size and their speed, oftentimes there just aren't resources to deal with those adequately. So yeah, having yeah, they're over in the Middle East, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, so um, sometimes liter. I mean, I meant figuratively, but sometimes literally. Oh didn't, yeah, no one of the one of the major uh, like, like say they didn't have enough people because or they didn't have enough equipment because it was over in like the Middle East somewhere. Yeah, like some of the major um, like planes that they used to drop <laughs> fire retardant have been like deployed to like Kyrgyzstan or Afghanistan or or as part of like the Afghanistan operations. I, I don't know the exact specifics of it, but <laughs> yeah, over there starting fires with them. There, there's a demand for resources at an international level that exceeds these, these huge, huge disaster events for, for States. And there isn't yeah. manpower or technical capacity to deal with it. <laughs> the artificial profitable demand is <laughs> right. being met, but the real uh, unprofitable demand is not being met. Right, and so even though communities like Fort Collins and Loveland here in Colorado are separated from the actual like mountain environment where most of these fires are occurring, because of these high wind speeds, these dry fuel conditions, and these extreme droughts that are becoming increasingly more common, it doesn't mean that these places are safe. Paradise, California was a great example. Essentially just a bucolic urban community, like a, a subdivision nestled in the foothills, I mean, those are all over Colorado as well, and that place got completely scorched. A wildland firefighter jumped, or a wildland fire jumped into the urban interface, and then just chewed through all of these houses in this community. And so it's not it's not unfeasible to think of <laughs> areas like Fort Collins, Loveland, and obviously Estes Park, which was actually evacuated, getting burned over in one of these wildfires. <laughs> Yeah, when we went to the outdoor uh, COVID concert uh-huh. in uh, Estes, Estes Park. Park, yeah, yeah. How many days after we saw that that guy that was the the upright bass player that might play saxophone? <laughs> uh, yeah, how many yeah. days after that was that evacuated? That, that was four days. Um, and holy shit! And that's and we were having like a normal time in that in that town. And again, talk about we, like mental we went health there stuff. to escape what was going on at Loveland, sort of right. I mean, that's that's a weird thing to try and comprehend when you think like I drove to this little town near my house and, you know, sat on a patio and drank beer 
four days before, you know, the sky turned black and it started raining embers and the whole town was evacuated. Yeah, we were even talking about like we could see a mountainside with a forest mm-hmm. on a hill across from where we were sitting. And we were even talking about like, man, yeah, if that place catches on fire, look at all that deadfall up there. Like, look at just look at how devastating that's going to be. Right. So just to kind of yeah, we're, what we're doing is dispelling a lot of these myths right out the, the door, right? Because we've had these huge wildfires doesn't mean they're not going to happen again in the same areas. Doesn't mean yeah, we way do not have this under control. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean that we have been able to control or mitigate this in any kind of effective way. Um, as we we're do seeing, not have yeah, the resources like to deal with it. Yeah, as we're seeing, we are not capable of controlling this. Right. That's why it became a two hundred thousand acre fire is because we yeah. we just can't. The reason we're in this mess too is that we've we've just been trying to control and we've convinced ourselves that we can control nature right and that's what's led to all of this yeah well with that let's let's jump into it and um kind of give some give some statistics and then talk about the history of wildfire in colorado in particular so as a recording on november 23rd there have been 1070 wildfires in the state of colorado in 2020 alone okay and on on the whole those have burned 625,000 acres. Now, how big does it have to be to be considered like a one of those in that number in the thousands? Well, let me just give a sense of size here. So 625,000 acres have been burned in Colorado alone. The entire state of Rhode Island is only about 775,000 acres. So basically a small New England state has already been burned just in Colorado in 2020 (laughs) by itself. The smallest New England state. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, not an insignificant area at all. Oh, not at all. Now, for the U.S. as a whole, there have been over 50,000 fires in 2020 alone. And that's burned almost 9 million acres. And for comparison, the state of Massachusetts is only 7 million acres. All right. So a bigger than the, one of the large New England states has already been burned primarily in Western North America in the 2020 fire season. Now, if you think, do you think like if actually the entire state of Massachusetts burned down, people be talking about this more? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um... The other thing to consider is that a lot of these wildfires are going on in wilderness areas and national forests. And these are remote areas that basically only exist as wilderness areas and national forests because they don't have tremendous economic value to be extracted, right? Or else... Yeah, totally. I mean, in the Midwest, the the reason that all of the like state forests are in super hilly areas is because that's just the only places that they couldn't farm corn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's not conducive to having heavy equipment, building things, and pulling farm implements on these extremely hilly or rocky places. Right, and that's also why it's so difficult to fight wildfires in these areas. Oh, yeah. Because well, we've actually, uh, around here mm-hmm. this fall, there was actually a number of cornfields that caught on fire. Um, and they spread to yeah. like multiple cornfields. But the way you deal with that here is you hook up a huge tilling instrument basically behind the tractors and you get a perimeter going mm-hmm. around it that's really that's really difficult if you're up in a mountain exactly i'm glad you brought that up because we'll we'll talk about how these these control efforts usually go 
But so let's look at the recent wildfire history in Colorado, because this is something that a lot of people don't understand. Okay. Which is that before like the year 2000, these types of wildfire events burning a hundred thousand acres never happened, just didn't happen at all. Okay. And in fact, before 2002, Colorado had never had a wildfire over a hundred thousand acres in recorded history. Before 1980, most Colorado wildfires were actually less than a few thousand acres, and most were much, much smaller. We're talking dozens or hundreds of acres. Now, those wildfires were still going on in the same areas that these ones are. Okay, They still had the same forest management regimes in, in the pre-1980s era. They still were packed with beetle kill pines. They still weren't being like uh, logged extensively. <laughs> that one or... guy was right. In- insects are the enemies of trees. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, is that under the same management regime, you didn't have these types of massive wildfires. And the reason for that has to do with climate change and temperature. Oil essentially. companies. Yeah, it has to do with oil companies. <laughs> has to do with the stock market right so yeah let's talk about how wildfire works and how fire spreads so i don't know if this is review for people but generally when we think of fire we think of a fire triangle you need to have three different things come together to create fire which is the you know chemical reaction that is tearing apart um molecules right Anybody that knows anything about engines already knows what this is. Yeah, you need to have um, an air source, right? You need to have a fuel source, and then you need to have ignition. As mm-hmm. like you just said, for ignition or for an engine, that's your your gasoline, your um, your uh, uh, radiator, right, and then your spark plug. No, your just your air intake. Your air intake. Thank you. Yeah, um, your radiator <clears throat> yeah, your cools it. Plug. That's right. But if you're out in the forest, um, you have wind, and you have wood, and you have people revealing <laughs> the genders of their babies. Yeah, you get a gender reveal party at the the right place and time, and now you have a 100,000-acre wildfire. All kinds of horsepower there. Yeah, now in, in, the, in the forest, generally we kind of think about the fuel that goes into the fire as occurring in three different fuel types. You have fine fuels, medium fuels, and heavy fuels. When you're, th- okay. when you're thinking about fine fuels, you're thinking about like pine needles, you're thinking about uh, grasses and sedges, little sticks. And then those medium fuels are like the shrubs and small trees. And the heavy fuels are those entire like full grown trees and then all the ones that have like died <laughs> and blown over, right? The, the heavy fuels are what we saw when we got lost in the Raywall Wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Or was that Roosevelt? That was, uh, yeah, Roosevelt. Yep. But yeah, there's a lot of these heavy fuels in these areas that are hard to access, right? Because uh, they haven't... Extremely hard. They're extremely hard to access, So, which means they haven't been like logged. Um, they haven't had control burns done in them. And so these heavy fuels, these mature trees, they get blown over in wind events or just die of old age. They just fall over and they lay there for hundreds of years until... Um, fungi decompose them basically or a wildfire comes along and burns them yeah and if it's been a drought condition for like five years there's not going to be much fungal activity going on 
Exactly, exactly. So to reference our past episode, in a quote-unquote natural system, and I say quote-unquote natural system because this is the system that the indigenous people of North America, the American West, were managing, um, under the indigenous land management paradigm, these areas would have been burned regularly. Okay, We talked about this in our forest management climate change episode. You would have a mosaic of habitats. You'd have areas with older trees, areas with younger trees, grassy meadows, sloughy wetlands, and just kind of this mix of habitats so that when a wildfire started, because of often human human intentional starts and occasionally lightning and other natural causes, it would burn a pretty small area because it would eventually just run out of fuel load. And there was enough moisture in the environment that it would have a hard time jumping into larger fuel classes. Because a a living tree that is full of water is actually a pretty hard thing to burn, right? As I'm sure people who have tried to start campfires with freshly cut wood know, very difficult to do. Oh yeah, but pine needles, uh, they start real easy. Right, so most of the the, fire spread is usually through those fine level fuels like pine needles. And so in this pre-1980 period, when you would have a wildfire in these areas, usually it would start in these fine fuels. It might burn a few um, larger trees, but usually by the time it would like burn through a small area, it would have to then creep through more fine and medium fuels, which had moisture in them before it could get to another area that had more heavy fuels to burn. And with that, it was much easier to to control. And so what Jared described in terms of how to stop a fire in a cornfield is exactly the same way they stop a fire in the mountains, which is to say you have to remove one of those legs of the fire triangle, and usually that's the fuel source. Yeah, but on a farm, you've got a giant tractor and a huge disc. Um, In a mountain, you've got like a group of dudes with... (laughs) axes and things like that and a helicopter dropping water sometimes right and that some the helicopter's activity depends upon wind conditions and smoke conditions and all that stuff so really it comes down to that group of guys out there on the fire line and they might be able to get a bulldozer into some of those areas but yeah a lot of this work is being done with hand tools with uh, axes shovels picks and basically Even what then, I mean, just moving a bulldozer around, they are not fast machines. Right. And when we look at the speed of some of these fires, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's I don't think there's a road gear on that type of thing. Right. The way that fire has been fought in the mountains is essentially that, yes, you look for natural, natural uh, lines of containment. That might be a roadway, uh, might be a river or perhaps even like a rocky ridge or something like that, but an area where there isn't any fuel, right? And so you identify that as a point where you could potentially tie off other lines of containment that you build, and that would be ideally where you stop the fire. But of course, wind can pick up and other things can pick up. And even if you dug a 50-foot wide fire line, a strong gust could easily carry a ember from one side of it to the other, right? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Fire can jump when it's windy. Yeah. And when you have an incredibly dry fuel load, then that becomes a really easy thing to do. 
which is not what happened for most of this time period between 1980, which is why fires tended to be much smaller. When they did start, they were pretty quickly put out. It wasn't in, in 1980, in fact, that an incredible wildfire happened by state standards at the time. The Emerald Lake Fire, which burned 10,000 acres in 1980 in Colorado. That was a that was a big one in 1980. Big. Incredible. I mean, that's a huge area. I'm just saying, like... Yeah. You know. Of course, now it seems like a quaint thing by comparison. Yeah. Well, didn't the Cameron Peak Fire burn, like, 100,000 in a day? Uh, the East Troublesome Fire burned 100,000 in a single day. Okay, yeah. Which is just stuff that is was completely unheard of even within our lifetimes jared that one that ten thousand acre one mm -hmm. uh, how many days did that take uh i don't have this the stats here in front of me but i would imagine it okay. was over some time and in a pretty remote area that it was hard to access it took a while it took a while and even then ten thousand acres for, for that time period was a kind of a crazy crazy loss but after that fires got steadily larger in the state of colorado until they really took off in the early 2000s with the one I referenced earlier in 2002, the Hayman Fire, which burned 137,000 acres. Now, that was also over a longer period of time, and that 2002 fire would basically be the largest in state history until this year. What Do you have figures for like the average acres burned per decade? Yeah, I do. Like before I do. 1980? Colorado State University has tracked wildfires over the decades. And in the two decades of the 1960s and 1970s, before the Emerald Lake Fire, less than 100,000 acres burned in Colorado per decade. Okay, so in a in a 10 year time per period, decade. In, in a 10-year time period, less than 100,000 acres burned. Okay, well, is that a good thing though? Well, that's that's a good question. You know that that is fire suppression. Because we're we're conditioned to think that that's a good thing. Right. Um, that's a continuation of the fire suppression of, you know, those earlier land managers, right? Because yeah, yeah. wildfire bad, tree good. The tree is a potential product and we need to keep it around, right? Well, I even just thought, oh, that's a good thing. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, and the, the problem is what, is the, what is the management alternative? Over quantity of burning, right? Right. Yeah, you're right. It's it's all about the quality of burning. And so in terms of like what's a practical land management alternative, that's a hard question to answer because if we were to say, yes, we should be burning, you know, what, what if Colorado were to just put in like a standard and say we're going to burn um, 150,000 acres per decade controlled, right, to mitigate so potential like wildfire. <clears throat> What's if that? you were the people making, if you were the people making these decisions, though, in the '60s and '70s, you would have you would have convinced and seemingly be proven right that this is the way to do things. Exactly because of because of entirely different economic development trends, right? Yeah. What like decade of these people do you think it was where they finally were like, oh shit, maybe we're? I mean, there's got to be a little doubt in people in like 2000, right? I think so. Okay, never mind. We read those papers from 1996. They were talking about it. Yeah. Well, and of course, we, we referenced that one quote from Aldo Leopold, who in, in like the 19-teens was talking about indigenous fire, fire practices. Well, he was talking about that. Mm -hmm. But was he like talking about that 
framed as like we are really screwing this up or just this is a historical fact probably at more of the the latter in that instance uh you gotta watch out for trivia guys yeah (laughs) doesn't always help (laughs) it's not trivia is not useful yeah take it from me with my (laughs) with my (laughs) bachelor's of literature and master's in ecology trivia is not useful (laughs) (laughs) oh man it really makes you sound like you know what you're talking about (laughs) we got a (laughs) it's literally (laughs) trivial country full of those people So, yeah, 1960 and 1970, we had less than 100,000 acres burned per decade. And again, just for contrast, during this fire season of 2020, we saw 100,000 acres burned in a day. And that was a decade on average in the 1960s and 70s. See, kids, don't kill yourself, even though the world's falling apart. It is interesting. It is interesting, yeah. So, uh, for 1980 and 19 through 1999, basically the 80s and 90s, that number of average acres burned per decade in Colorado increases to over 200,000 acres per decade. So we okay. see a, a double in the average burning. And then for the 2000s, that becomes 2 million acres for, for, per decade. So you, we can see this exponential increase as wildfire acreage burn just really takes off after the millennium. And that's because of climate change, right? That's because yeah. of... <laughs> You know, we're actually feeling the effects of climate change. This is what they talked about in the 1970s when Exxon was saying, gee whiz, I wonder what will happen if we keep putting all this carbon dioxide in the air. Wildfires of increasing intensity was definitely on that list of what they thought would happen. <laughs> gee, I wonder what will happen. No, they knew. We're going to have <laughs> yeah. we're gonna have yachts until we're dead <laughs> and then not have to deal with this. <laughs> Yeah, we have this increasing intensity of wildfire. <laughs> you don't even have to be an accelerationist because it's just happening already. Exactly. That's the crazy thing. <laughs> Accelerationism was like a theory at one point, but it's sort of it's sort of just the state of things right now. Right. Yeah. If you haven't taken the black pill, it's kind of like you're just ignoring things, I feel like. Well, ignoring things has its place. <laughs> sure, that's true. That's true. You know, you can't make yourself crazy about this stuff. That's not helpful. If you sit at home worrying about shit all day, pretty soon you'll start to look like a person that sits at home and worries about shit all day. (laughs) (laughs) So 2019 for Colorado last year was actually a pretty good year firewise. There was low wildfire risk over much of Colorado. And actually for northern Colorado, it was actually a pretty wet year on on average. And so this is the first point that Jared and I kind of stumble into the story that we're talking about, because we actually hiked over much of the area that has been burned um, in the Cameron Peak wildfire in 2019. As with most things in life, I just stumbled into this story. (laughs) Jared came and visited us in October of last year in 2019. And we actually, uh, my, my fiance and myself both did individual separate uh backpacking trips with jared oh man it was such a good time it was a great time one of them was actually in the cameron peak area you basically hiked the trail right by where this wildfire started the blue lake trail with amber i remember got some beautiful pictures of it Mm -hmm. Uh, of blue lake right yep and all of that's burned over now none of those trees are there uh 
And all right, well, I'm still <laughs> feeling okay. And then um, a week later, Jared and I hiked over the what is now like the eastern portion of this fire, where we basically hiked from Pinkery Park through to essentially the Estes Park area, from the CSU Mountain Campus to um, Glen Haven, Colorado. <laughs> and um that was a funny that was a uh, funny I experience i can't even think about that trip without just giggling <laughs> it's like kind of this like nasty bit of like foreboding of foreshadowing because the whole time that we were doing this hike we kept talking about the intensity of the wildfire that was going to come and burn through that area that has now oh, yeah. been burned yeah i mean we got lost because the trail disappeared into just all this dead fire. <laughs> yeah this was like a kind of a again remote area not an often used trail and there was so much like heavy fuel load that is just laying all over through this area we basically went lost the trail we had to use the gps to basically navigate five miles overland in mountainous terrain and through that i i describe it as a green hell because <laughs> Uh, you couldn't take two steps without having to climb over like a hundred year old tree, you know, it was terrible. It was an awful hiking experience. (laughs) (laughs) This was on day, like what? Three to four of our journey to, uh, yeah. So I was already already tired. tired. Yeah. We weren't eating enough and the whiskey like I always do. (laughs) And, uh, the knees paid for it. But man, when we got lost, (laughs) The pickles and whiskey came in very handy. I thought we, because we had, I thought we had drank through our whiskey by that point. Like before we got lost, <laughs> we didn't even have whiskey to oh, get Oh no. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I pack, I pack for any contingency. <laughs> but interestingly, this was like the weekend of, I think October 4th and 5th that we were out there, but we were having a campfire every night. Oh yeah. <laughs> One night, uh, <laughs> I was doing a little smoking in my um, inflatable <laughs> air thing, air barrier for my hammock, and I uh, put a hole in it, so we had to start a fire so we could heat up rocks to put underneath my hammock so I could fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, we made this, like, roaring huge bonfire, and then we were putting these massive flat slabs of, uh, of granite <laughs> that we were finding. Just making some hot rocks, man. Yeah. Could we have done that? This year, even if there weren't, you know, if that area wasn't being immolated during that time frame, no, absolutely <laughs> well, not. Probably wouldn't have needed the rocks. It would have been plenty warm. Right. Uh, but, of course, I remember that when you and Amber did the Blue Lake Trail, you got rained on, right? Oh, yeah. We ended the trip a day early because we were so sick of being rained on for so long. Right. And then the area that we hiked had been recently snowed on. We were seeing snow in some areas at the higher elevations. And so that's early October, but that's what you want to see in the mountains for that time period. You want to start seeing rain. You want to see high country snow in late September, early October. Sometimes even in August and July, you start seeing these types of things. At least that's what would be a normal expectation under previous climate regimes. But that's not the system that we're playing in anymore. That's the thing that we have to understand is that now when you have like snow in the high country in July, that's really unusual. And what unfortunately didn't happen this year after the fire started was any of that fall moisture. Yeah, the system that we purposely built that has led to this system that we accidentally created is not suited to the conditions. <laughs> exactly. Um, surprisingly, right? 
Yeah, who could have thought that one would happen? <laughs> All right, so uh, when Colorado entered 2020, even after a pretty light fire season in 2019, the south and the southwest of the state were already in drought. Northern Colorado was doing okay. Southern Colorado is kind of in drought normally, kind of, aren't they? Basically, it's a dry it's a dry area naturally, and the xeric conditions are only increasing now under climate change. What's going to happen is that what was once considered drought in south, southwestern Colorado and much of the Colorado Plateau, to be honest, is now the new normal. Right? It's just going. It, the desertification is going to be the buzzword of the next thirty years for. Much of the, honestly, much of like the Southern Plains and the mountain, uh, intermountain West desertification. When I reference the no longer fertile crescent, the like cradle of humanity. Right. um, Desertification. (laughs) Yeah. That's why it sucks so bad in parts of the Middle East. Right. Climate change is drying these areas out. And what, even though drought cycles exist outside of human anthropogenic climate change, we're just amplifying those in extreme ways to make us even more fucked over. Yeah, we're artificially <laughs> selecting for deserts. Basically, yeah. Um, I think that's a good <laughs> way of like putting it. Seems like a bold it. move, Cotton. <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, even though much of the state was okay coming into 2020, except for the south and southwest portion, in April of this year, fire chiefs around Colorado were already asking our state's governor, Jared Polis, to issue a preemptive statewide fire ban. These are like the guys in the disaster movie, the guys and gals in the disaster movie. <laughs> These are the people everyone's going to be pissed at because they can't have fires. Right. They Everyone hates them because they're the buzzkills. They're the ones saying, you know, oh, uh, Reckoning's going to come. You kids think you can just mess around and have your, your campfire cookout in the woods, but there's going to be a reckoning one of these days, you know? <laughs> Don't get hooked on campfires. It's a gateway drug. <laughs> People were already kind of forecasting that the trends coming into this year did not look good because what we were looking at and what ended up happening even in April was a higher on average temperature for the summer because of, you know, climate change with only average or unchanging precipitation. And this would actually end up being below average precipitation in the fall. Okay, hold that thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to get another beer. <laughs> All right, we're going to have some above average precipitation. Oh, how you feel? You feel good? Yeah, man. I'm feeling good. How about you? Good. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling great. But yeah, so uh, to just kind of bring... What we're talking about with ter- with temperature and precipitation trends for 2020, to loop it in with our water cycle, right? Because obviously we just talked a lot about the water cycle with the Clean Water Act. The way it normally works in the mountains is most of your moisture comes in the wintertime with snow, right? At particularly at higher elevations, you get these huge, massive drifts of snow. And that builds up in the winter and the spring. And then as things warm up in the summer, that slow that snow slowly melts. And it basically enters the groundwater. It enters rocks. And oh, God. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> there's going to be so many landslides in the next 10 years, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's another ancillary effect of this is, um, you know, now you don't have stuff to hold all that moisture in when it does come, right? So what would normally happen is, yeah, the snow would melt. It would become uh, trapped up in groundwater and, in, and, yes, physically in rocks. And then it would be used by plants for a long time. And basically, as that snow melts off in early, like, June and July, honestly, is what it would normally happen in the high country, then it would be replaced by rain from, you know, summer thunderstorms and stuff. Um, but here's the thing. When you have a higher average temperature, it leads that snowpack to melt off earlier. And even if you had the same amount of precipitation, simply the fact of that earlier snow melt would change the water cycle in these areas. So basically all of the plants, all of those fine and medium fuels in particular that are uh, relying on that moisture begin to dry out much earlier. And critically, all of those heavy fuels in the dead trees, those trees are just laying there all over the place. But whenever it rains or snows, they soak up all that moisture and they hold it for a long time. But when... See, <clears throat> I told you plants aren't intelligent. <laughs> That's proof right there. Well, uh, <laughs> and when um, it warms up a little bit earlier in the year, those heavy fuels lose their moisture more quickly. And if there isn't, say, lots of summer thunderstorms to replenish that moisture, then they become a huge fire risk by around August, September, October. See, if these plants would just take a little more personal responsibility and hold <laughs> on to that water a little better, not be buying avocado toast and coffee, <laughs> spreading that water around, uh, we wouldn't be in this mess. I hate it when I see these pole class blue spruce running around with their Starbucks all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, G get a fucking job, you fucking tree. <laughs> Oh, man. that reminds me. I need to call Starbucks tomorrow and tell them to save their coffee grounds for me. Oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> we got three of them in town, so I'm calling all three of them. I bet they've got a lot for you, actually. I mean, I know they do. Oh, that yeah, shit. totally. Yeah. I went in there today to get some and they like don't put them out in the wintertime. And I was like, all right, well, fair enough. But you know, I'm going to need what's up. No, I was just going to say uh, one thing I wanted to like start the episode with one of these times was to just say like. We're the compost men of history. We we think about composting a lot. Jared and I as individuals <laughs> probably spend collectively about at least 10 hours out of every week thinking about compost. Oh, yeah. I am constantly, well, I mean, you know, I see decay all around me, so it makes me want to think about decay. Yeah. I just will sit in my backyard and stare at my compost pile sometimes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally. I am, like, torturing myself because I have three compost bins and no compost bin in them or no compost in them and at some point we're gonna have to do like a compost manifesto for our show because essentially what we're talking about today and all of our stuff that we talk about is how everything is compost everything boils yeah, down gotta, to this <laughs> we gotta compost some of these ideas we're, you know? we're mixing we're turning over the old ones and mixing <laughs> them up with the new ones yeah 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 you can't just get rid of everything like there's still no energy and nutrients and stuff in there you just have to allow them to break down so that they can be reformed into something new and healthy right yeah there it is um <laughs> right so as we would see areas of northern colorado 
at least in the early part of summer, had normal precipitation levels. And I remember even thinking to myself in June, because I'm a gardener, I was thinking I didn't have to water my garden for like three weeks because I was getting basically like every three days we'd have a nice little afternoon thunder shower. Yeah, but you've also built a gardening space that is capable of that. You should talk about that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I have a Hugel bed that is basically built to hold water, right? Because I've incorporated heavy woody material in the underground space of my gardening bed. And that heavy woody, that heavy woody material, just like the heavy fuels out there in the forest, are really good at soaking up a lot of water and holding it for a long time. Oh, yeah. And if you keep putting water on it and make sure that you know um, that's a, a space that has living plants on top of it, that can actually be, you know, it's, it's not something you have to worry a whole lot about unless it is really dry, right? Yeah. Yeah, think about it like the, the dead wood is basically a rechargeable battery, but it only recharges if it rains. Exactly, exactly. And if But if it does rain, you don't even need a whole lot of rain. Just a little bit will get you by when you have that type of system. Oh, yeah. Osmosis, kids. Okay, so, but by the end of July... Things are starting to dry up in northern Colorado and really across the state. That's osmosis, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. The the movement of water between different, like, Yeah, densities. between soil and wood? Definitely, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought I knew it, and then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's been a while. I mean, Big I think maybe... Words, words like osmosis don't matter. If you understand what's going on, you can call it whatever the hell you want yeah it's it's water going from a place with lots of water to a place with slightly less water that's osmosis yeah anybody that's ever dried their hair understands this yeah dude exactly that's that's such a good way of putting it because when we teach science we usually put the the vocabulary word first we say oh it's osmosis and here's what it is yeah and then people are confused dude (laughs) 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 telling you that education fellowship i went to was extremely valuable for teaching like children Mm mm-hmm you know yeah teaching people that don't know that much about something yeah i think you know you got to frame it in a way that people understand maybe in their everyday life yeah all these like vocab words and all that shit it just kind of functions to shut down learning because you have to first learn the terminology and then learn the concept and that's completely backwards i think right go light some grass on fire and then tell kids about controlled burning and stuff like that. You know, (laughs) they will love that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll learn. Exactly. They will learn in two hours what it would take you a month and a half and some bad grades to get them to forget in two months. All right. Before we get too sidetracked. Okay. So July 31st, we have our first major wildfire start in Colorado, but this is actually out West. Okay. This is uh, the Pine Gulch Fire, which is starting in an area just north of Grand Junction, Colorado. All right. I'm going to picture this fire as wearing like boots and spurs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's the thing is because it's out west in a less populated part of the state. It's, it's just burning through tumbleweeds. It's just burning through a lot of that medium fuel load tumbleweeds, already dry area. So it doesn't seem like an unusual <laughs> thing. started... Right? That started as a joke, but it's also true. It is true, yeah. And so for for a lot of people living on the Front Range, which I think is probably where a lot of our Colorado listeners live, it didn't really register as like a big deal, right? However... Yeah, see, out there, it's Back to the Future 3. It's out in the Old West. Exactly. But once you start coming a little bit farther east, then it's Back to the Future 2 and Biff's president. 
that is the way that Colorado is. You you just described <laughs> it, Jared. Okay, it's are you in Back to Future Two or Back to the Future Three? And um, for all well, of us I over here in Colorado, two, better than I ever have now. <laughs> Yeah, so but this is out there in, in, yeah, the Old West. And it's a drier area naturally, so we don't really, like, register it as a big deal. However, it actually reaches 140,000 acres, and it becomes the largest in state history. Now, by now, this is actually the, like, fourth or fifth largest in state history because of everything that would come after it. But it is it basically quickly becomes a big deal in its own right particularly for the people living in the area. But after July 31st, as I said, rainfall really uh, fell off in much of northern Colorado. And so this is what kind of spurs these uh, new wildfires that have become even larger to begin. And that brings us to our main topic, the Cameron Peak Fire. It only took us an hour and 15 minutes to get here. Yeah, I, I've got some stuff to edit. I've got some stuff to edit right. on this one. Only took us an hour to get here, dude. You know Joe Rogan makes like five hour long podcasts. Did you? I didn't yeah, even know. Of course this. he does. We could He's just got all the money in the world. We could just be making five hour podcasts, and people would are probably like, like us more. If if you and I didn't have to worry about bills, what else would we be doing right now? Well, we'd be out like hiking and camping and yeah. shit. And, but and then podcast. What else would we be doing? Like when we went back home. <laughs> We'd be fucking hanging out on a podcast with our friends for five hours. That's it. it. Sounds it sounds incredible. Fucking Joe Rogan, so jealous. Man, if I was just born with the inherent ability to tell if fear was a factor for people, <laughs> I would be rich. I would be rich, and then I would be Joe Rogan. Okay, so Colorado wild. <laughs> The Cameron Peak Fire, which, as we said, is 92% contained in the largest in state history, starts August 13th. Now, uh, there was actually someone nearby when this started. There was a young hiker from my hometown of Loveland who was in the area. He had headed up the Blue Lake Trail, which Jared mentioned he had also gone Okay, up. I better slow down on this. This thing is 13% alcohol. <laughs> okay okay before i get too drunk though i gotta tell my boss what he has to do tomorrow okay so we'll get the ball rolling here i'm talking out loud because uh starting to get a little drunk (laughs) that was the goal for this podcast because i mean i just i think about when you were actually out here and we were like sitting on you know we were watching the fires burn and like uh you know, that was kind of a traumatic experience. And so, yeah, I was like, Jared, get some yeah, strong I fucking beer. came home and spent all the money I have on fucking three acres of land. Yeah. Yeah. He was <laughs> totally scarred. Literally, like, we haven't talked about that, but I've been looking at this place and being like, okay, so I finally got out of debt. I'm actually making money. I have some money. Do I want to spend it all? And the um, answer was yes. Well, I mean, the answer was who the fuck cares if we're not going to have like any health care and the fucking forests are all burning down. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Who the fuck cares if I don't have any money when that shit's going on? Yeah. Live your hashtag best life. I'm trying to, man. Yeah. It's insane. Like we're going to talk about mental health next episode. Mm-hmm. Since I did this, I have never been happier in my life. Like, you know, when you just see those people and you're like, yeah, 
that person is doing exactly what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've turned that corner in life. You know, we're all going to fucking die. Yeah. And uh, shit's not great. Yeah. But, you know, what the fuck? What do I want to get out of life? There you go. Here you go. (laughs) You know, I'm out there trying to fucking get it. Mm -hmm. The people that are causing all these problems, they're doing the same fucking thing. So I can't blame them too much. But also, you're destroying everything, and please stop. Yeah. Well, let's let's pick it back up with the the wildfires. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Is this <laughs> is this not what we were talking about? <laughs> well, we're both getting a little drunk here, as we intended, as we oh, yeah. intended to do. So that's what I'm fine. saying. I am never getting one of these fucking jobs that I covet because I yeah. cannot shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, I don't want to. Yeah. You know what? Everyone's depressed and shit like that. Do you know how depressed you get when you just know that you have to shut the fuck up about what you think? That's the most depressing because you thing. Need to, because you need to keep a job. Yeah. Like, if you don't shut your fucking mouth, maybe you'll be sleeping in an alley in fucking a year. Maybe. Uh, that's awesome. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... I'm so glad that we've created a world in which that's a thing. I mean, yeah, because we have created we have created this world. We have. Yes. <laughs> um, not me and not you, but as a species, mm-hmm. we like so many other species, we're not special. We're just good at it. Alter our environment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think we have to acknowledge, even though we're not responsible personally, the two of us for a lot I'm of these finishing problems. this bottle, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> We we are still responsible for it. Even though we're not responsible for causing it, we're still responsible oh, yeah. for it as members of society in terms of talking about it, calling out the bullshit, and saying what's what's the, the right way to move forward. That hokey Instagram bullshit about fucking be the change that you want to see in the world. Stop posting about it and fucking Yeah. You know what a what a pointless thing to say. I'm not I'm not gonna say do it, but try to do it. If you want to do it, try. If you fucking fail a couple times, that's all right. Let, Keep let, at it. For for our listeners in particular, let me just phrase it this way. Why did why is Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court right now? It's because a lot of fucking <laughs> conservatives said they wanted to, you know, be the change they wanted to see in the world, right? <laughs> well, she's a Supreme Court justice, James, and I don't think I like your time. <laughs> I'm holding you in contempt of this podcast, sir. Oh, I've got, I'm going to have a lot of editing to do. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. <laughs> Five hours of Rogan raw. <laughs> well, I feel like we've actually found our voice now. <laughs> August 13th, 2020. A young hiker from Loveland, Colorado starts up the Blue Lake Trail, intent on spending a few good days in the woods catching fish, enjoying nature, and getting away from the hectic troubles of modern society. Sounds like he's on to something. On his first day, in the area of Cameron Peak, between Cameron Peak and Blue Lake, this hiker hears what he reports as a gunshot. And a short while later, around 1.30 p.m., he reports seeing smoke. Now, 
there's a lot of different reasons that you could see smoke in the in the forest you know people have campfires out there i don't think there was actually a fire ban on at the time that this started either for that matter and this hiker continues along his way um over the mountain pass catching fish but behind him now the camera peak fire has started and is blowing up he did catch some fish though he did he had a good time he did well apparently for himself he caught a lot of rainbows and a few browns good (laughs) those might be the last rainbows that are caught there and consumed in quite some time (laughs) they're introduced it's fine yeah yeah we can we can put them we can put them back rainbow trout brown trout are both introduced species from europe actually um delicious yes and beautiful they are beautiful fish horrible ecological disasters for native fish populations well (laughs) we're talking about (laughs) fires though Right. Now who's derailing the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) So in the first day of the Cameron Peak Fire, it consumes a pretty significant amount of forest, uh, almost 2,000 acres in its first day. So obviously the conditions are right, and um, it's it's already taken off exponentially. 2,000 acres would have been a crazy big (laughs) wildfire in like 1960, right? Speaking of Amy Comey Barrett, I think my like podcasting style is just badgering the co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you've been listening to too much trash future, <laughs> and well, there's your problem. <laughs> I don't think that's the thing. I don't think you can listen to too much trash future. So, within one week, by August twentieth, this fire will have expanded to sixteen thousand acres. This is what I'm kind of calling phase one of the fire. Yeah, just a little guy still. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, now, huge for, you know, pre-1980 fires. This was, this was wow. remember, the largest, in 1980, the largest fire in state history was 10,000 acres. And within yeah, one week, we're age. at 16,000. What was this that? Is the age of fa- this is a new age. This it is. is. the age of fast fashion, man. You're right. You're right. It is. It's a new age. It's a new climate, right? Mm, I think this fire is just a fad. We'll see if it catches on. Now let's let's talk about this hiker who was in this area, who was around right. there when the fire started. So he kind of continues along his trip, intending to kind of loop around this mountain range and end up back at his car. But by one weekend, that car has actually been towed by the Forest Service because that parking lot <laughs> has been burned over. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> okay. And, and so things are things aren't going quite according to plan. No, and what this this guy says is that he's he's seeing an unusual amount of wildlife. There's a lot of wildlife in this area, but he's seeing like moose, elk, bighorn sheep, deer, birds, squirrels, rabbits, <laughs> and they're all like heading in the same direction that he's going, which oh, is Jesus away Christ. from the fire. Has he ever seen the Lion King? <laughs> He basically is trying to loop back that around. Sounds, that sounds like terrifying and magical at the same time. Right. As someone who spends a lot of time in the woods, you actually, you don't see a lot of wildlife all the time. No, usually if you see some wildlife, it means you're getting pretty good at sneaking around. Exactly. But when you're seeing... three bobcats this year, dude. I have seen a few bobcats myself this year as well. Hell yeah. Um, For like a combined six seconds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're seeing all kinds of wildlife in like a short period of time, that's really unusual. And that's what this guy yeah. was seeing. 
Unless you're on like an elk farm. Right, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> this guy, basically he's looking at his route back to his car and he sees that it's now blocked by fire. The fire has burned over his trail out. And um, lucky okay. for him. <laughs> no, please, please. Can that not be the thing that's happening to me right now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of magical thinking going on in America, um, but uh, <laughs> this is one you can't Dude. you can't really magical think your way out of when there's a wildfire blocking your trail. Basically, lucky lucky for him, he has what they call like a GPS beacon or a spot beacon with him. And yes, never have I had one of those. I, I I've never used one. I I probably will never use one. But well, are you sure? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is he actually did have a helicopter fly over him earlier uh, before he used his spot beacon. But he gave the all okay, all clear <laughs> signal, which is... I mean, still, that probably made it easier to find him, though. It did, yeah. And so, basically, he got checked once and they didn't pull him out. And then he used a spot beacon and the helicopter came and they evacuated him. And one thing I will point out is, you know, if you buy, like, a hunting license in Colorado... You pay a small additional tax, a, a fee for search and rescue, and this is why: is so that oh well, if you taxes are immoral, I think that hiker should have probably been to death. Actually, <laughs> well, what it means is like if you fall and break your leg in the backcountry or something. Yeah, that was a that was a personal choice. I shouldn't be subsidizing bad behavior. <laughs> well, this is this is kind of like what some people call socialism. <laughs> Vote for fucking, what was the libertarian candidate? Oh, Jorgensen. Jorgensen, yeah. yeah. Vote for Jorgensen so you can burn to death in a fucking forest <laughs> fire when you're out hiking. Please, please, just <laughs> answer my dreams. All of us Coloradans are, are happy to pay our search and rescue fee for exactly this oh type of God. reason. This guy takes advantage of our social <laughs> social welfare hiker rescue system here in Colorado. <laughs> that fucking freeloader. I'm happy. I'm happy to pay for it. I'm happy that this guy survived <laughs> and that we got him. Yeah, out. I've. I don't think I've ever paid that, but I would fucking like Patreon that. I mean, for like all the people who deer hunt in Colorado, it totals out to like fifty cents of your license cost. Okay, yeah, I don't you care pay if 50 it's cents. five fucking dollars. <laughs> Can I yeah. donate five fucking dollars so we can get more helicopters? Yeah, I mean, that's that the thing, also, right? That also is used to fight fucking wildfires? Exactly. This is this is what society needs to needs to do, is to All right. ingrain All right, kids, this. Stop it. buying your avocado toast and start <laughs> donating money to this thing I made up. I have no idea how I'm going to edit this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well. <laughs> All right. No, 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 no. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> a light hand. So within the first week, <laughs> this wildfire has burned 16,000 acres, mostly in the vicinity of Cameron Peak. Now, this is kind of the phase one of the fire, as it essentially burns through um, the local fuel load and the areas that are kind of easy to access along this, you know, face of the mountain. All right, so you're telling me this is a larval fire. It's a larval fire at this point, albeit a very large one given the state's history. And okay. this is right around the area of the Continental Divide because basically this is in the area where if you go north, you go down the Kashlapuda River Valley, 
which leads to the Platte River and the Atlantic Ocean. But if you go south, you go down the Colorado River Valley, and which leads to, you know, the Colorado River and the Pacific Ocean. Okay. In theory. In theory, yes. It actually leads to California. <laughs> yeah. But, uh... <laughs> So this is that area. Um, it's it's high in the country. There's variable uh, valleys and drainage systems. And one thing that happens in the mountains is you have basically an upslope wind and a downslope wind. As the sun rises and heats different areas of the landscape differently, wind tends to rush from like lower elevation areas up to higher elevation areas to displace that um, warming air that's rising. And then when night falls, the inverse happens and you have like a downslope wind as cooler air from up high rushes down to displace the warmer air from down low. So what that means is that when you have a wildfire in these types of conditions, it can move both upslope and downslope depending upon the time of day. All right. So you know how you just like when I was out there, you hit me with that fucking like pyroclastic cloud term yeah or whatever the, the pyrocumulus pyrocumulus yes all right well i know enough about latin to figure that out but i'm also enough of a pain <laughs> in the ass where i just pretended i didn't know what you were saying for a little while <laughs> but um will you talk about that a little bit I and mean, like about how different uh temperatures yeah kind of dictate where the smoke is going right so um all of that wildfire burning produces a lot of smoke depending upon how much fuel is being consumed. And if there is like no wind, if you don't have, uh, if you're particularly like in the afternoon and you've had like a lot of fire burning through the day, um, or rather if the wind is down low in the atmosphere and not up high, then you have these huge pyrocumulus clouds forming. And so this is jumping a little bit ahead in the story, but like when Jared came out here, October 14th, 15th, what he was greeted by was essentially a mushroom cloud over the northern front range. It was not something I've ever seen before. Well, and actually it's a good approximation for what you would see if a nuclear weapon had gone off. And Yeah, I mean I've seen pictures of those. And, and it this looked, looked like it. Strikingly similar. Right. And so um actually that, that cloud reached like created. The reason that this is happening, though, is because there's very little wind and it was pretty warm that day, right? Yeah, the wind. Well, it was because the wind was like down low in the valleys, basically. Um, the the pressure. the And the, it was just blowing everything upwards. Right. The weather systems were such that most of the um, movement of air was like pushed downward into like these mountain valleys and stuff. So the fire was getting blown on and accelerating rapidly. But the stratosphere above it was pretty stable. And so all that smoke basically just collected in this huge pyrocumulus cloud. And actually, I think that the, the mushroom cloud metaphor is a good one. Because the type of destruction that's going on during this type of event is essentially what you would expect from like a uh, tactical nuclear weapon or something like that. Yeah, And this is what I'm talking about, though, where you should... <clears throat> see the phenomenon first and then learn the terminology because when you exactly. see something like that exactly you cannot help but want to know more about it because it's it's scary 
That's the thing, is it's scary. and It's scary, it's spectacular. I mean, you were talking about Fallout 3 earlier. It seems like a cutscene from that. Exactly, yes. And this fire will actually gen- generate a few different pyrocumulus clouds over its course. But that's a few weeks away. So within its first week, we're at 16,000 The other thing, acres. though, is like that day it was really windy. It probably mm-hmm. wasn't that smoky, right? Right, because the smoke was um, being dissipated in the upper atmosphere. Within two weeks, we're kind of entering the second phase of this wildfire, where it's burned most of the local fuel supply around Cameron Peak. And by August 27th, it's reached 22,000 acres in size. And now it's in the Poudre Canyon, which is what leads to Fort Collins, Colorado, home of Colorado State University. Not a ridiculous name for a canyon at all. Thank you, yes. Um, the the Cache-la-Poudre River is a French name, which means to store one's gunpowder. Like I said, nothing (laughs) ridiculous about the French. Right. Now, what we call it locally is the Poudre River instead of the Cashla Poudre. But uh, this is in the Poudre Valley at this point. But it's also moving up other valleys towards Rocky Mountain National Park because of those variable upslope and downslope wind patterns. It's moving to much less funny canyons. (laughs) Yeah. Now, during this this initial time period, the Cameron Peak Fire is burning over a lot of, like, national forest camping areas, picnic areas, um, human infrastructure, right? And this is when Highway 14, which is kind of the main route of access through northern Colorado to get between, like, eastern Colorado and western Colorado, closes. To kind of give a comparison for that, at this point, it's like... If you were living in like Minneapolis area and you needed to drive to, uh, let's just say like uh, Grand Forks, you would have to like drive all the way south through Albert Lee and then like over through Sioux Falls and then up to Grand Forks. That's like the type of closure that this is where like what was once a one hour drive becomes a four hour drive. Awful for business. Awful for business. Yes. Um Starts causing huge, huge infrastructure <laughs> as, problems. As someone that works in the trucking industry, not good, folks. Right. And, and yeah, those people who live in this canyon are being evacuated at this point. And after the second week, the fire kind of stalls out for a little bit. August 27th, it sits pretty steady at around 22,000 acres. Still relatively in the area around the head, headwaters of the Poudre River in the Cameron Peak area. And if there was a time when this could have been locked down and stopped, this would have been it. Okay. And in, in this, See, I told you week. this was a fad. We're going to get over this fire. It, people still have some optimism, but the thing is, is for people who are living here on the front range, this is still not really something that's registering in our collective, like subconscious, right? I'm glad to know that optimism isn't overrated. <laughs> At this point, it still is a little bit kind of farther removed from our more populated areas. It's like, you know, a good 25 miles from Fort Collins. It's very in very yeah, rugged you know, country. There's homeless people, but they're not near me. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of problem that you might register when you hear about it on a news report, but it doesn't, it's not, you know, sitting there looking at you. Yeah, right, it's nice and abstract still. Exactly. Yeah, you know, thoughts and prayers to all the people that are getting affected by this, but it's not me yet. And so, honestly, I think that abstraction is probably why it wasn't stopped right then and there. 
right? Let's talk about that. What do you mean? Well, 22,000 acres, though, is already double the largest wildfire <laughs> up until 1980, right? Yeah. And that's in two weeks of burning. So even then, if we're saying I'm could just it saying, have been uh, stopped? Whose point of view are you presenting here? The people that are actively fighting this or the people that are making the decisions to provide them with resources? I'm just saying from a third party observer's point of view. If there were a moment when this could have been kept from becoming what it would eventually become, this is Okay, it. so you're like the guy on the nightly news given the forest fire update. Well, I'm giving the po- the post hoc rundown, right? Like this is yeah. after the fact. I'm just saying But like if you're the person that's sort of half acidly talking about this, you're gonna be like, Yeah, you know, it's a twenty thousand acres, uh Sure, that's not great, but, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers, the people out there fighting this are doing a great job. And now we're going to throw it over to Jeff with the sports report. <laughs> the wildfire, the firefighters at this point are looking to use things like Colorado Highway 14, um, various reservoirs and streams in the area as their containment lines. They're cutting fire line in other areas in these wilderness and national forest areas. And basically... The thing is, is like if, yeah, if we can attribute anything to human agency, this would have been the time the human agency could have intervened and stopped this before it would eventually blow up into this beast of a wildfire. Now, coming into Labor Day weekend around September 3rd, this fire is still setting pretty still at 23,000 acres. It's burned a few hundred more acres over the past week. But what we have are red flag warnings at this point. Now, a red flag warning is something that we get pretty commonly out here in the western U.S. that basically means that fire weather <laughs> is likely, that's windy. So we have red flag warnings coming into Labor Day weekend and several days of wind. Now, on the bright side, there's a snowstorm that's forecast. People are saying, oh, we're going to get like a foot of snow on this fire and that's going to put it out, right? I hope so. I but- fucking hope so. <laughs> but before those snowstorms come in, there's a lot of wind. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to convince myself that that's what's going to happen. I think that's what a lot of people did. But with all of that wind that comes before those weather fronts move through, the fire starts to blow up. And on September 6th, it increases to 35,000 acres, basically increasing um, by 12,000 acres in a matter of days. And by September 7th, it's now 60,000 acres. So we jumped 40,000 acres between September 3rd and September 7th. <clears throat> and, I'm completely okay with this. <laughs> and during that time period, the fire moved basically 10 miles laterally to the east. And that's via this this wind spread, basically. It's kind of like if you had like a blow dryer, right? It's already hot. It's unseasonably hot. It isn't <laughs> raining. And you have a blow dryer and you're just blowing it on the fire. And there's plenty of fuel, as we've discussed. There's all this down and dead fuel. Now I'm thinking I need to like engineer some type of hand crank blow dryer for when I'm trying to start a fire. <laughs> I'm pretty sure people that fucking work with metal and use forges use that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a bellow. Just like crank it and this wind is just going to stoke the hell out of this fire. Right. And that's what did it. That's what caused that 40,000 acre spread. And, in fact, it gets even larger because um, it enters Rocky Mountain National Park. It's burning over Comanche Wilderness. And this is like 
its first big push to the east. It spreads 10 miles, and by September 10th, when that snow actually is falling, the Cameron Peak fire is now over 102,000 acres. Also, during this time period, I'll point out, another wildfire starts up north of Steamboat Springs in Colorado, the Middle Fork Fire, which would go on to burn 20,000 acres. <laughs> this is going to be like when uh, uh, the Revolutions podcast tried to do 1848, and we just have yeah. so many things going on at one time. that There's like so many explosive yeah. incidences going on at one time. It's going to be almost impossible to keep track of all of them. That That's a really good point, because... Fires are going to keep popping up through this. And what you need to think about is the way resources are allocated. There was once a 60, there, well, a week ago, there was a 20,000 acre fire. And we had all of the resources of Northern Colorado pinned on that. Now yeah, we have well, the a 60,000 acre. allocating way too many resources to keep this fire going. <laughs> we literally are losing the battle against the environment. Yeah, that that's that's going to be the the overall. Is that the way we're going to have to frame it to get funding to actually have <laughs> like what the fuck? We got a space force. We don't have a goddamn forest fire force yet. I mean, when you put it that way, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> what the this fuck do I care about, about space? This is what I'm talking about, folks. Find the absurdity in life and then uh it'll teach you quite a bit. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, so other fires are popping off now, and luckily the snow, this is the crazy thing, One almost a foot of snow falls over this now 100,000 acre wildfire on September 10th. I'm so jealous of that. Basically, it offers a reprieve, and although it slows things down, you still have to remember that there's all these huge 100, 150 year old trees that are in these areas that are being burned. And as you probably know, with a large log on fire, you can dump a lot of water on that. And if the fire is set in deep, it's not going to put put that out. And there are massive trees and heavy fuel loads oh, yeah. all We're over these like 100,000 acres. We're talking 40 inches diameter pieces of wood. 40 inch diameter pieces of wood are going to hold fire for a long time. Trees that are almost as thick as you are tall right and so even a even a foot of snow will not be enough to fully squelch that amount of fire and that type of fuel load well just think about what happens when snow falls on ground that isn't completely frozen right now imagine that that ground is like 300 degrees it's not like a foot of snow is ever on these logs. Right. It's just melting off. Yeah. Yeah. It's being turned into steam. Yeah. Which is then going to melt more snow that falls in the canopy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, this snow does offer a bit of reprieve on the fire spread. And it basically steadies out at 102,000 acres after September 10th. And stays there for like a couple of weeks. September 17th, there's really no growth. Little activity. Stays there, but does not die. No. They're, the people who are fighting this fire are able to increase the containment of it. But remember, they're now having to split their efforts between other wildfires in the region. Mm-hmm. And on September 17th, the Mullen Fire starts in Wyoming. 
and it actually crosses the border of Colorado. Now, the Mullen Fire, as of right now, is the third largest in state history. This has burned 176,000 acres. But this is drawing resources well, away from Cameron Peak. that's still a little bit more Peak. than uh, our Cameron Peak fire we're keeping track on here. I know. Well, it's like you said. There's going to be a lot of other stuff peeling out in different directions now. Um, <clears throat> Forest fires are like onions. They have layers. They do. But Cameron Peak still isn't growing a whole lot. By September 24th, we've added 3,000 acres to 105,000 total. And by September 27th, um, we've now added, basically this is kind of phase four of the fire by this point, where there's a new spate of growth as winds out of the southwest push the fire now to the northwest towards what is the Red Feather Lakes area of Colorado. And this is the point where it starts to actually threaten a lot of residential communities. Red Feather Lakes is like kind of a vacation home <laughs> community, I guess I would call it. God damn it. That is so offensive that a place called Red Feather Lakes is just filled with rich white people. It is, basically. Um, you know you know that that's called Red Feather Lakes because that's what the natives called it. Probably. Uh, but, yeah, so... This is this is a new spate of growth that basically burns over 20,000 acres in this week and starts to threaten this small community. And when we're thinking about how are the firefighters dealing with this stuff at this point, basically whenever there's this period of rapid spread, <laughs> they all have to reorganize I'm, and jump on it, I'm, right? I'm supposed to feel bad that this small community was threatened. Of vacation homes. Force, from an outside force. Yeah. Okay, just so we have that straight. Proceed. All of these people's vacation homes are being threatened. There's this new period of growth, and so it draws these firefighters away from other areas of the fire where they're working on containment lines, and they get put to, you know, stopping it from threatening this community. Dude, let those fucking things burn. Yeah. um. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we got more important places to save. Right. So that's kind of the the fourth big period of spread after its initial takeoff, moving into the Poudre Canyon and then down the Poudre Canyon. Um, now it's threatening Red Red Feather Lakes, and it kind of stalls out again after that. The people are able to contain it just short of Red Feather Lakes. This is the thing. There's a lot of we're doing just barely enough to keep it from eating up huge areas of human infrastructure. But really, we can't do anything else to stop it otherwise, except to just limit its most destructive effect. How many people does, like, the state of Colorado have in total fighting these? Um, I'm not totally sure, but I think it's in the low thousands. For the whole state of Colorado, I think we're looking at maybe four or five thousand people, something like that. Okay, well, that's that's more than I was imagining, I guess. I, I think at the height of the Cameron Peak fire, there was a little more than a thousand people fighting it at its most intense. Just that one fire? Just the one. Okay, and that was clearly not enough. Oh, no. This is just enough to keep it from doing absolute damage to populated areas. Not enough to stop it in any kind of significant way, though. Okay, so we're, once again, not solving any problems. We are mitigating damage. Well, it's like you said during the Clean Water Act episodes. We're just addressing the problems that are right in front of us. 
Wind, wind picks up out of the southwest and starts to blow the fire towards and Red I Feather mean, Lakes. Get everybody in front of Sort of, of it not even it. those. Barely, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to choose to laugh about that. So by, by October 4th, the fire is still holding pretty steady at 126,000 acres. The, the spread has slowed down once again. And other fires are again drawing more resources away. The Mullen fire has actually surpassed this. The one that came down from Wyoming. By October 4th, the Mullen fire was 136,000 acres. And had become the largest in state history. All right. Well, second quarter trends have shown that this is the one to go with. This is the <laughs> one to bet on. But um, again, during this whole time period from August, September, and now into October, except for that one big snow event, there's basically not precipitation in northern Colorado. You're not getting rain. Okay. You're not getting snow well, except for that one big one. All right. I got a little bit of insider information now, and I think the futures market on the Cameron fi- the Cameron Peak <laughs> fire is looking promising. Exactly. There you go. I'm going to shift all of my investments towards <laughs> that one. The Cameron Peak Fire starts to grow in early October again, jumping to 130,000. And the stock market—it's—it's it's really a mysterious beast, huh? It is. I know the fire triangle is so hard to understand, and it's like, <laughs> man, if I have wind and all of this dry wood, and there's already a fire growing, like, what's going to happen? I don't know. It's just hard to say. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can scrounge up enough money to pay somebody who might know. <laughs> So uh, the fire kind of enters a new phase in mid-October. And this is, a, again, around the time Jared comes out here and sees the puro cumulus cloud burning. All right. <clears throat> now, on October 11th, the Mullen Fire up there on the Wyoming-Colorado border is by far and away the largest in state history at 174,000. Yeah, sure it is. For now, right? According to polling, but we're, we're ready for an October surprise. But between October 14th and October 15th, we have more of those red flag warnings. Oh, yeah. Cameron Peak Fire is doing some opposition research. And on October 14th, the Cameron Peak Fire is 134,000 acres. And in one day, it adds 30,000 acres and another huge run to the east. Oh, yeah. That's all those TV ads in yeah. Ohio. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's mark. It's uh, cashing in on its marketing campaign. Oh yeah, see Cameron Peak Fire. It's got a good marketing team. <laughs> and this is when Jared comes and sees the pure cumulus cloud that this is generating. As those seventy mile per hour winds are pushing <clears throat> this wildfire basically another ten miles to the east in a matter of yeah, days. Yeah, I decided to come down there and check on my investment. Conditions seemed favorable, and uh, I actually elected to double down on the Cameron Peak fire. <laughs> well, it's a good thing you did because in this time period, it's I had a little bit of cash over. on hand, and I had to get in before <laughs> the speculators inflated the market artificially. So, um, it can as this is going on, it's consuming many more structures and is burning over a lot more of these uh, like little subdivisions up in the the foothills and stuff like that. Warren Buffett is a genius. And it's now 20 miles from its origin point. By October 15th, the fire has moved 20 miles to the east. In the two months that it's been burning, it's jumped to now 164,000 acres. And those high winds are only just getting started. 
And again, this is after a this is a month after a foot of snow fell on this fire. Okay, a foot of snow uh, fell on it, basically calmed it down for a month, and then it blows up again. Well, conditions are perfect for increased profitability in this fire, <laughs> even though it's ninety two percent contained now. This could still happen again feasibly, because it's yeah, well, it's sunny know, and dry. You only have to care about percentages before like mass matters because at a certain point once you get to a certain level the percentages don't matter anymore it's the mass amount of capital you're generating or destroying in this case um well (laughs) that's a matter of subjectivity it is that's true it's a matter of perspective so it's now 20 miles from its origin and it's now beginning to threaten these northern front range communities of like Fort Collins and um, Loveland. All right. So you're telling me I need to buy some stock in Lowe's for when all these houses burn down and we got to rebuild a bunch of houses. Honestly, that that would be the smart thing to do. Um, <laughs> but now also on October 14th, this is when uh, the East Troublesome Fire, which we referenced earlier, starts over by Granby, Colorado, on the other side See, of the Continental Divide. <clears throat> Okay. I feel like the marketing team tried too hard, though. The East Troublesome Fire, a little on the nose. I don't think that's <laughs> going to be the biggest one. I'm sticking with my initial investment. Cameron Peak all the way, right? Uh-huh. So um, that that little fire kind of starts up and starts to draw some attention, again, away from the Cameron Peak fire. But those high winds have continued, and by Saturday, October 17th, the Cameron Peak Fire is now 187,000 acres, making it the largest in state history, and it's now expanding towards Fort Collins. And it actually starts a spot fire. It jumps over an entire valley, this fire does. Sends embers mm-hmm. to an entirely new ridge line to the east of the fire and starts a spot fire, which is what we were actually able to... This See, is Saturday, or October now 17th. Now we've got, we've got a passive income stream going <laughs> And that's the night that we were able to go and look at the fire burning in two different places, if you remember. We could see the spot fire to the kind of the north of us, and then we could see the oh, main I'm pretty fire sure, to the northwest. I'm pretty sure that even when I have developed dementia from all of like the head trauma and lack of sleep, um, I will remember seeing that fire. <laughs> this is its second and kind of last big run to the east so far. But by 10 weeks in, October 22nd, the Cameron Peak Fire has burned 207,000 acres. Now, on October 22nd, that other fire that had started only right, a week what did, before... Hold on. What did I get in at, though? What's that? What did I get in at on Cameron Peak? You got in way back at, like, 60,000 acres after its first, like, big spread. Well, even if it drops off, it's... Uh, so you've, got, you've gained 140,000, yeah. Doing pretty good. Now, it on October 22nd, the East Troublesome Fire, which started again only a week before, that fire grows 100,000 acres in a single day due to more high wind conditions. Yeah, but I know a flash in a pan when I see it. <laughs> and it actually approaches, it's able to jump the Continental Divide, which is completely unheard of. I mean, having a fire grow 100,000 acres in a day is unheard of. We talked about how that well, was a decade hey. of fire. That Don't was a- get dazzled by new technology. At the end of the day, this is still just a forest fire company. 
in in the 1960s and 70s, a whole decade of wildfire in Colorado would consume 100,000 acres. And now we have the East Troublesome Fire eating up 100,000 acres in a single day. Jumping Sounds like a lot of people lost jobs in that. Well, a lot of people were evacuated. They lost their homes. A lot of people lost jobs, sure. And, of course, all of this is also happening amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think bears repeating as well. That confounding all of this is the fact that as people are being pushed together in evacuations and are being contacted by sheriffs and police and family members, they are also at risk of contracting, you know, potentially fatal illness. I mean, that's all well and good, but all I'm hearing is that we have increased the efficiency of these fires and reduced the amount of inputs required to create them. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So, uh... My job, my job has made me, like, understand the most evil parts of, like, the human psyche. So on October 22nd, because this fire, the East Troublesome Fire, has jumped the Continental Divide, it's now burning in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it's burning essentially down a, down a canyon towards Estes Park. See, now we got a problem, though, because we have a bunch of these, like, aesthetic value areas mm-hmm. under threat. The aesthetic value areas are under threat, but also consider this. Remember how I said that Highway 14 is the only way to get from eastern Colorado to western Colorado in the northern front range? Well, Highway Mm -hmm. 14 is closed by the Cameron Peak Fire. So how do you allocate resources when you have a 200,000-acre fire and then a 100,000-acre fire that's spotted over the Continental Divide to the south of you? Um, I think we need to get the fire to commit 9-11. That's the thing. You just evacuate the city because you can't do anything. No, I'm pretty sure you have to brand this fire as a terrorist. (laughs) Well, regardless of how you brand it, Estes Park got evacuated. It was basically pitch black in Estes Park on October 22nd at 2.30 in the afternoon. Okay. Uh, Estes Park, having a normal one. (laughs) and again this is like four days after jared and i were there drinking beer and sure it was smoky then but it was pitch black october 22nd you think that guy ever figured out if he was actually an upright bass player or a saxophone player you know we'll never know because he died in the cameron peak fire well as a bass player (laughs) he's definitely a bass player he's way better at that yeah the cameron peak fire is just to the northwest or just to the northeast of Estes Park at this point. And the East Troublesome Fire is just to the southwest of it. So there's actually like this potential for these fires to combine. All right, dude, this fire has studied military history. He's going to use it's going to use the <laughs> what is it? Like the swinging gate technique? Oh yeah. Okay, <laughs> so just to give some perspective on how close this East Troublesome Fire came to Estes Park. Probably some of the people listening have visited Rocky Mountain National Park and have stopped at the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center along Colorado Highway 34. Well, essentially, the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center is where the East Troublesome Fire got stopped. Basically, one or two miles from Rocky Mountain National, or from Estes Park proper, is where uh, they were able to finally stop this fire that had spotted over the Continental Divide 
and burn down into Rocky. So you now have two different wildfires, neither of which started in Rocky Mountain National Park, which have done havoc throughout the park now, two months in. See, let that be a lesson to you. It doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you end up. And <laughs> since then, I love how you're making this like a super inspirational story for the wildfires. <laughs> like, Hey, man. I have decided that my task on this planet is to make people feel better and to try and increase biodiversity in any way I can. And I try to do those two things as frequently as possible. Hey, man, you know, you might just be a little match right now, but someday you could be a wildfire. Well, we'll see, man. I got a lot of depressed friends, so uh, sometimes all you need is a purpose in life. Yeah. And some novelty, but, you know. And a nice purpose, novelty, meaning you find those three things, you'll probably be pretty happy. And a windy day, and you've got a hundred thousand acre wildfire. <laughs> All right, so um after October So uh after the the evacuation of Estes Park on October twenty second, and that big push now by the East Troublesome Fire, there hasn't been a whole lot of activity on either of these. But significantly, I will say the last major activity was November 1st when the combined growth on the tru- on the East Troublesome and the Cameron Peak Fire was about 800 acres in a single day. All right. <clears throat> We've got a real uh, synergy worked out here. Since then, it's slowed down quite a bit with colder temperatures and more precipitation at higher elevations. Yeah, that's because of COVID, though, man. Supply chain slowdowns, you know. Sure. And, and thankfully... Thankfully, um, they have been getting more precipitation since then, but it's still been very warm and very dry down here at the lower elevations. Uh, humidity levels on most days are still around only 15%, which is pretty low. And honestly, extremely low, extremely low. And we still have a fire ban in, in place. And most of our national forests are still closed for the foreseeable future. Um, areas of Rocky Mountain have reopened. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I said, what's going on today in Loveland? Today in Loveland is pretty calm, but sunny and warm. Areas below 8,000 feet are still hitting 50 degrees most days. Okay. And that's not good for fire weather. If you're hitting 50 degrees and it's sunny and it's November, that's cooking off a lot of that moisture that you want to be holding in those fuels. Oh, dude, over here, it's been like 70 in the daytime sometimes. Now it's, it's cold and it's like supposed to rain tomorrow all day but it is it is fucking like three days before thanksgiving right and it's raining outside and this is the first precipitation we've had in like meaningful precipitation in like a month when it snowed exactly and the same is true for for us out here in colorado like down here in the foothills we're still not getting meaningful precipitation um these fires for that reason still aren't fully contained now I just want to point this out. So we haven't had a lot of major growth. The Cameron Peak Fire is now 92% contained. The East Troublesome, the one that spotted over the Continental Divide, that's only 72% contained. That's the second largest fire in state history at this point. Oh, only 72% contained. What's that? Only 72% contained. Yeah, that's the thing is that... And what's it at? Total... Total acres? 193,000. And what's Cameron Peak at? 208,000. All right, I'm going to sell Cameron Peak. I'm buying these <laughs> troublesome. 
And Cameron Peak is 92%. Yep. Yep. Sell it all. Buy East Troublesome. <laughs> What's interesting is that they could have combined into a super complex over Estes Park, but that didn't happen. I just want to really emphasize this. Is that all of, the, all of us citizens of Northern Colorado, and particularly people who enjoy Estes Park and Rocky Mountain National Park, we got so fucking lucky on this one. Because these two fires could have combined over this area. There's well, literally nothing I mean, stopping maybe. them from doing it. Maybe. They're still going. They are. That's true. But let me just let me just give the timeline and the stats here. So... The East Troublesome spread was October 22nd. That's when the East Troublesome ate up 100,000 acres in a day. The big day for the Cameron Peak fire spread was October 18th, which is when it ate up about like 40,000 acres in a day. Okay, so you're saying about a third of this all happened in separate single-day events. Right, And but this is the critical thing, okay? Those were four days apart. If those had happened on the same day... There wouldn't be an Estes Park. There wouldn't be a Rocky Mountain National Park Visitor Center. Everything would be gone. And that's that's going to happen in the future. That's an inevitability at this point. We got so lucky. The Cameron Peak Fire blew up four days before the East Troublesome did. Because that's why they were able to quickly move resources and personnel <laughs> from the Cameron Peak. They had four days. They were able to consolidate Cameron Peak and then move people to the East Troublesome to stop that <clears throat> spread. But if they had been happening Dude. at the same time, the only thing that could have happened was to get everyone back, evacuate the area, and let it burn itself out. Imagine if you lost your house in 1980 <laughs> and then rebuilt it. How long does it take until you stop rebuilding that? You how know, many, how many times? This is how something... many times until the insurance company is just like, you know what? Uh, you're a bad investment because I think that's going to be what it takes. Well, this is something I talk about in my environmental science class with my students when we talk about climate change and hurricanes, right? Because it's like, at what point do oh, we no, decide no, no. that ben, the Gulf ben Coast Shapiro... is no longer habitable? No, Ben Shapiro just says you can sell your house. Like, if you're in a hurricane zone, just sell your house. Who's going to buy a house in a hurricane zone? Well, right now, people will definitely buy it. <laughs> right now, sure. Cheap but real estate? Saying... <laughs> We're going to prop this economy up on these fucking investments on the ocean. But, James? But, <laughs> but so I, I take what you're saying, <laughs> What do you though, mean, Jared? but? I, no, 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 seriously, seriously. But that's definitely going to happen. You're right. This is propping up the economy (laughs) because it gets destroyed every 10 years and then you rebuild all that shit. That props up the economy, right? Like I said, that's great for timber companies. It's great for timber companies. And oil companies because, as I just learned on, well, there's your problem, all of the wood we're using to buy these houses is also oil. That's right, yeah. A lot of that plywood Plywood is is oil. oil. Laminated wood is oil. And they burn even hotter than regular wood. Mm-hmm. And also increase climate. Never mind. <laughs> you just got to choose to be happy, man. Yeah. You get hit with something like that. You know what? 
fuck it. <laughs> I still got to try to live in this bitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Estes Park, you got lucky. Rocky Mountain National Park, you just got lucky this time. But it's going to happen in the future. Why, why do we rebuild New Orleans after every hurricane hits it? There's just going to be another Category 5 hurricane five well, years from now that's going to destroy I mean, people it. live there, but... Let's, let's touch back on what we talked about last time. Well, let's talk about the dams. I keep talking about the goddamn dams. You're talking about New Orleans. You're talking about climate change and altering the water cycle and why there's not enough fucking rainfall anymore. We got to talk about these dams. I'm not I'm not ready for dams yet. But what I'm saying We got to talk about these dams, dude. The Klamath River in Washington is going to demolish all the fucking dams. All I'm trying to say is that you know, at this point you're right, Jared. This is propping up the economy. Destruction is now propping up the economy because Yeah, we are literally built on this. If we stop doing these things economically, we are fucked. And but, that's why it's not going to change until it has to. But the trade-off is extreme social misery and the inability yeah. to function yeah. as a society. Yeah. Because you know that. I know that. It's pretty plain to see. But also, I think we just saw with this last election, that ain't on the table, bud. What I would Let me just say what I would like to see, right? Okay. I would like right, to see right. when, you know. Yes. Let's get into, let's get into idealism. That's healthy. <laughs> when New Orleans gets hit by like a Hurricane Katrina or something that totally mm-hmm. destroys it, we would say, oh, so this is part of a increasing trend in hurricanes. And this city that's built on the Gulf Coast that has been getting smashed by hurricanes for the last 200 years is going to get like extra double, triple smashed by hurricanes oh, going yeah, forward. Of course. But where are these people going to go? Exactly. I would like for us to answer that question. I would like for society, for Joe Biden, to go and say, let's find a place for these people to go. Once again, James. Once again, got to talk about the dams. Same situation. God, I fucking hope we don't handle it the same way we did in the past. Uh, Flesh that out for us, Jared. (laughs) Flesh that out for us? Just a little bit. Give us a taste. Yeah, what do you get? Well, on the Missouri River... There are six main stem dams, and they were all built on places that historically were not productive, a.k.a. a bunch of Native American tribes inhabited those areas. And uh, the Corps of Engineers, the saviors of our water, um, decided that they would just build these dams and displace these people and basically say, here's a little bit of money. Um, We've set aside a reservation for you. We're going to flood this place that you and your ancestors have lived in for 10,000 years. And you got about a month to get out. And I think what you're saying is that as sea levels inevitably rise, as hurricanes... Which they are inevitably going to do. And already are, yeah. Yep. As hurricanes continue to devastate Florida and the Gulf Coast, that's going to be the equation. It's not going to be... We're going to find new homes. We're not going to have a choice. These places are going to flood. They are. Yeah. What is what is going to happen to all the people that live there? They're going to get cut a small check from the government. And that's it. Emphasis on small. Yeah, that's it. They're not going to say we're building new communities for you in Iowa. Even even if they do, <laughs> maybe they build, maybe they build some housing. 
they're going to cut a check and they're going to tell people you got to get to this place. There's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to be able to afford to get to that place. Just recently here in, in Loveland, I saw um, an article about the, the homelessness. Uh, you know epidemic. how you can't really be anywhere without money? Well, this is what I'm saying. So the prescription here in Loveland for the homelessness epidemic, which has been increasing because of COVID-19 and the economic depression, is to provide affordable housing, which can be sustained upon $500 a month. And I'm like, okay. Well, okay, that's fine for the people with jobs. Right, but when I'm thinking indigent people, homeless people, I'm not thinking people who can afford $500 a month, am I? Seems like uh, you're not you're not doing anything <laughs> about the problem. Well, you know how much money they always make begging on the side of the road, especially uh, as there's an increasing number of people doing that. Um, that's going to increase the amount of money. If the farm, if the ag industry has taught me anything, yeah. more homeless people means more money going to homeless people. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> overproduction of homeless people is going to lead to economic development in that market <laughs> well that's the idea but obviously it doesn't work because homeless people don't have any money well no shit <laughs> <laughs> of course it's not gonna fucking work if you think about it for two seconds it's not gonna fucking work right but that type of thing is what we have built this society on it's we have outgrown the system that we've created emphasis on we've created and it's absolutely not sustainable you know i hear a lot of talk in leftist circles right now about you know the developing like social trends in society and how there's going to be more and more corporate control and you know the hollowing out of the state and all this stuff I don't buy any of that because I think that the ecological crisis is going to catch up to us way sooner than people think it is. Well, I mean, there is going to be that, but uh, we're at like such a level of that already that who cares? Right. This Um, is what I'm saying. Like the percentages don't matter once the like mass outpaces that. Exactly. That's it. The mass will outpace the, the percentage. Yeah. That's why when a fucking billionaire only makes two and a half percent they've just made fucking like four billion dollars it doesn't matter what the goddamn percentage is all right so um what does all this mean (laughs) i hope you know well basically at at the peak of uh this fire these fires and mid-october they were growing 10 square miles an hour okay let's put aside all the human stuff just for a moment when you have that rate of spread animals can't move out of the way of that that's enormous loss of if we want to talk about it in human terms valuable game animals you know aesthetic value being eaten up human right. property and infrastructure <laughs> i'm going to talk about alfalfa again sure but uh, when I was growing up, we had a 12-acre alfalfa field that we would burn every five years and then replant. Yeah. Because that's about the life cycle of alfalfa. And we would go out there and start our fires on like a not very windy day. And it would take us all day to burn 12 acres safely. Right. 12 acres. 
And we're talking about 6,000 acres an hour. <laughs> it was bordered on two sides by a crick fi- or a fucking combine filled crick. <laughs> the comp- the old combine crick. <laughs> <laughs> but that's safely, I'm just saying, right? dude, like if, if we were going to purposefully burn the South Alpha field, it would take all day. Yeah. And now what we're talking about out here in these wildland areas are fires that are burning 6,000 acres an hour. 10 square miles an hour. Wildlife can't get out of the way of that. When you have firefighters who are at working on containment and that type of event happens, they can't fight that. That's an unfightable fire. All you can do is pull back. If you can even do that. If you even can. Should we bring up uh, Andrew? Well, uh, man, I, I didn't really want to, but, um, yeah. Well, so I mean, it's, it's, a it's a reality of this type of thing. It is. It is. Um, and yes, yeah, what, when wildland firefighters are caught in those situations, they, they die. If they're not able to pull back and evacuate like a good friend of ours, uh, I, well, not a good friend, an acquaintance of ours. I don't want to. I, I never, it. I never knew him. I worked in the same laboratory as him after he was gone. Yeah, um, an acquaintance so I heard of ours stories who uh, was a wildland firefighter in, I think, Oregon or Washington, one of the Pacific Northwest states. That's um, the way it was told to me. Yeah, yeah. He was a wildland firefighter, and he got burned over in one of these events, and he died. He died in the in the fire. Now he went to college in Vermilion, South Dakota. I mean, he, you know, just a normal guy for the most part. Yeah. Liked to hike. Um, he was married to, uh, to another one of our, uh, friends and acquaintances and she is widowed now, um, because of, a because of a fire blow up, like what we've been describing yeah. today. Because he tried to do the right thing. Yeah. <clears throat> this world makes it hard to do the right thing. Yeah. So, yeah, listeners who are out there, obviously many firefighters have died fighting fires in America, but I'll just say his name, Andrew Zajac. Uh, he was a good friend of ours and a good friend of the podcast. Even though he's just an acquaintance, we'll call him a good friend. How about that? Yeah. I would say so. I never met the guy, but he was out there trying to stop forest fires. So a good friend. Now for, for our Northern Colorado wildfires, for all of the Colorado wildfires in 2020, there have actually only been two people who died. No wild, no firefighters have died. Thankfully. That's incredible. It is incredible. It's so, again, so lucky. We are just lucky this year even with all yeah. of the tremendous amount of acres burned the first second and third largest wildfires in state history have all occurred in the last three months yeah i mean as far as i'm concerned that's the closest thing to heroes that i know about is the people out there fighting these fires and honestly yeah get out of the way when it's blowing up like that get them out of there it's not worth it it's not for 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 these people's lives some of these people on these volunteer crews are defending their vacation homes I don't care. I don't care what their motivation or what their obligation is here. Thank you. Yes. You're out there fighting those fires. You're doing everyone, everyone on the planet, a fucking service. You're a climate warrior at that point, for sure. So, yeah, the two people who died, though, Jared, in the northern Colorado wildfires, this was an elderly couple near Grand Lake. And I'm going to tell their story briefly. I might even quote I already this. know it. 
No, 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 we mentioned it in the last one. I just want to dig in a little bit. This is like a Red Dead Redemption side quest. (laughs) So this couple... I I love these people. This couple got married in 1952. To give you a sense of the the time span here. Yep. And they, they honeymooned in the Rocky Mountain National Park area. And they so Man. they so fell in love with the aesthetic value of that area that they decided to one day buy some property and build their retirement home just adjacent to Rocky Mountain National Park near Grand Lake, Colorado. See, you're going to make me feel sad about these people that built their house where they shouldn't. <laughs> I'm going to try and complicate it for you as much as possible. They would say the property became a lifelong mission to create heaven on earth to which Dude. family, friends, and strangers who quickly became friends would be drawn. I love these people. These they sound like they sound like beautiful people. I just wonder like how many of the indigenous people who once owned all that land given our western constructs of ownership would have been welcomed as strangers onto their property. I mean, these people didn't have anything to do with that. They got married in the 1950s, dude, right? Like You're I, you're right, but I mean So, as as the East Troublesome Fire was blowing up and approaching their home on October 21st, they were contacted by the sheriffs in the area and asked to evacuate. And this elderly couple refused to evacuate. They were so in love with this home that they had built in this beautiful area with the wildfire bearing down on them. And being elderly already, of course, they decided to, as we kind of started, <laughs> incidentally started this topic off with, they decided to basically commit suicide. They were gonna bur- yeah. they were gonna burn to death in their own home. Those beautiful idiots. Yeah, October twenty second, the East Troublesome Fire burned over their house and killed these these two elderly people. But really, I mean, is it even sad? Would they have wanted to go on if that place was gone? That's why they stayed, right? They didn't want to go on. They're going down with the ship, man. They did. Their son called them and... Pleading with them to please come to your senses. And they told him... They, they quote, told him they they were resolute and adamant. They would not leave. We came to our senses 30 years ago. If this place is going down, we're going down. And they basically stopped responding to phone calls and just, you know, made their peace with things. Beautiful. Idiots, but beautiful. Beautiful idiots. And so, yes, hey, their, their home burned there's and they nothing, died. There's nothing wrong with being a beautiful idiot in this world. Here's the problem, though. Because of the way property works, now their son owns that property adjacent to Rocky Mountain National Park. And to honor his parents' legacy, he's going to rebuild he's going to build back better okay on that land that his i was on the parents side not on the son's side yeah at at this point you should know better you know what figure out all of the plants they had plant all of those do not put any structures on there and let's see what you can do yeah honestly if this person for whatever trick of fate is listening to this podcast Jared's right. Let this go into a natural state. 
don't build anything on it. If you want to keep the land, have to be natural. Fine. You know what? If they had a bunch of non-native fruit trees, fuck it, plant them. Sure. Go go camping there. Yeah. You know. Um, build a fucking build a compost outhouse, and build like a little lean-to, and go camping there. And if it fucking burns, it burns. Right. I was gonna say if you wanted to donate it to you know the national forest or the state or whatever, great. Um, well, get yourself some type of easement or something, or yeah donate it to any of those you know there's a lot of good that you could do out of this but to anyone who's lost like a vacation home or even a primary residence in these areas um this this is a sign as we said what's going to happen well, now because we're of Protestants, the climate trends, we don't do we don't do omens <laughs> well because of the the trends and and the climate for colorado these conditions mean that the ecosystem that was once there, this kind of like mixed uh, evergreen forest, is it's not gone. going to... It's gone. Yeah. It's What's gone. going to come back is like the an actual fire ecosystem. This is what people in California call a fire ecosystem. You're going to have a mix of those evergreen trees with shrubby, woody plants like sagebrush, and then a lot of grass. And that, that means... And those- those ecosystems have their place, but it is not in the mountains of Colorado. Well, right. And what that means is you're going to have more fine and medium fuel loads, which are, of course, even easier and quicker to burn, even under marginal fire conditions. They won't be as catastrophic. It won't be as catastrophic, but under certain conditions, it will be equally uh, destructive. And Over that means- a time scale. Over time, within five, ten years, it can absolutely See, reburn again. We're back to non-point pollution, though. This is going to be a non-point fire. Right, right. So for people who rebuild in, the, in these areas, who rebuild their, their vacation homes that got burned over, they're rebuilding something that will burn down again. Yeah. Plant as many non-fire <clears throat> spreading plants as you possibly can. Yeah. If you like if you're you're going to do it anyway, just learn a little bit about your ecosystem and I mean give us a fucking chance here. Right. Right, exactly. Give us a chance. You're going to fucking build. I know you're going to build. Give the firefighters a chance. Look into cover crops, look into uh recycling gray water, look into all that shit because if you're going to have even a fucking fighting chance at keeping this second house you're going to have to take some drastic measures. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the ecosystem and is it's changing. Still, it's still not it's going to work. To. It's just, no, it's just not going to work for a little bit longer. And if you live in like one of these, you know, mountain Valley communities like Estes park, Colorado, or any, any other number, Silverthorne, Colorado, um, throughout, throughout the Rocky mountains in the Sierra and the Sierras to the West, if there's a rich person looking to buy your house, I would sell it. I would sell it. Yeah. <laughs> sell it. Oh man. You know what we need to do? What? Like if we actually had like funding and a plan. Uh-huh. We just need to cover all of these bear these burned areas in as much manure as we can get our hands on. That would actually uh help out, I think, you know. Yeah. All that organic matter. Yep. It would not be the same ecosystem, but you know what? You'd get mm. shit growing out there at least. 
and you'd be able to absorb what little precipitation sort right. of falls there. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, as with anything, the answer here is improving soils. That's, that's just it. You know, we talked about landslides. We talked about the, the, uh, they call it the V max, which is the ability of the soil to, to hold I think moisture. What's gonna, I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to kick this conservation bullshit and we're going to have to get serious about improving these areas. Conservation is a poor substitute for permaculture. Because the whole thing with permaculture is that it's you're trying to build a permanent adaptation for man. Yep. Conservation is trying to like enshrine some kind of like twisted artificial system that we've well, kind like of imposed said, after the fact. You're waiting for everything to get old and die and burn down. The indigenous people in these areas were doing permaculture when they were doing their starting their fires and, you know, building mosaic habitats. Yep, and that's what I was talking about. It does not matter about terminology. These people were doing, they were putting the concepts into action. Yeah. Jared, Jared's so right. What's happening right now is we're just asking for all this shit to burn down again. We're everybody asking, knows Everybody knows too much of yeah. the wrong thing. Yeah. As soon as you think you know something, it means that you give yourself permission to stop investigating and stop learning about it Mm -hmm. you know the 2020 wildfire season it's kind of drawing to an end but it's still not over one thing that i'm going to forecast for you know the next decade is we're going to see wildfires that actually span the winter we're going to see fires that start like in october and which are still running come march in some areas well it gives everybody something to look forward to and when we have a fraying fabric of society, people aren't invested in some kind of broader commonality. We talked about this, Jared, when you were out here talking about how, you know, there's, there is a quarter million people here. We all, you know, all the men have registered for selective service ostensibly because we could be called up in some type of emergency event, right? Oh, yeah. It, we could do it so easily. You could we are we are excellent at calling up and deploying human beings to complete a task. Yeah. No matter how stupid. So we could definitely do it for something that makes sense. We get people showing up at the fucking Michigan State House to protest <laughs> having to wear a fucking mask fucking with their idiots, own yeah. with their own firearms. Right. You telling me that we can't get people to fucking show up at these fires with their own tools? Right. But the thing is, is that we're not bought in on our shared resources like we would have been 100 years ago, right? Well, because they're not shared anymore. Well, exactly. Because why would I risk my life? They're held as shares. They are. Why would I risk my life to save the house of a millionaire? The Not even the house, the vacation house of a millionaire, right? Well, that that millionaire made a poor personal choice, so they should obviously be made to reap the fucking seeds that they've sown, right? That's how we're supposed to think. That is how we're supposed to think, exactly. But what's happening, though, is that these are, these are, in a real sense, shared resources on these public lands. And it's not about the millionaire's house. It's about all the trees that are being consumed. It's about... The carbon yeah, well, that's being released if, in the atmosphere. 
what if that millionaire's house is part of a broader fucking system that maybe you don't give two shits about his house burning down, but his house burning down is to contribute to another 12,000 acres of forest burning down in three days. Right. That's a good point. We don't have that. Well, that social contract anymore. Well, who's we? I certainly think that way. I mean, to an extent, I do as well, but it's hard to overcome the... I think what you're trying to say is, there is no we, and that's a real problem. So the the, the question, I guess, if we're going to like kind of make a bigger point out of this, I think the question for like people today, yeah, is how do we rebuild, not society in a real sense, but society in an emotional sense? How do we how do we regain empathy? I don't know, man. Um, to quote another famous British prime minister, the Americans will do the right thing after they've tried literally <laughs> everything else. <laughs> and uh, I don't think eventually trying the right thing is really an option at this point. Yeah, man. So for Colorado specifically, future fire seasons for Colorado, you're going to have years where it's not as bad. You know, you're going to have some years where you get a little more moisture in some areas and it won't be as bad. Thankfully, 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 and count your lucky stars. If you can go outside in October and breathe, you know, enjoy the uh, obscuration of what's actually going on, but do not forget about what's actually going on. Right. And for the for the future going forward this is going to become much more of the trend this has been a a long and sprawling episode of compass bin of history but i feel like this was one that had to happen and i'm glad that we got it out there well i've enjoyed it hopefully anyone else does i've enjoyed making it but this is going to be absolute hell to edit <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I feel like you can leave most of it in. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I've been James. That's I'm still Jared. This has been the Compost Bin of History. And, uh, oh, I wrote something down. Hold on. You always okay. ask me for final thoughts. Yeah, give us some final thoughts, Jared. All right. If you're trying to understand something that you're still struggling with and you don't get it yet, Try to relate it back to something that you do understand. Now, that's just solid advice. That'll take you pretty far in life, I think. All right. I, I'm actually being called away for dinner, though, so I actually do have to end the podcast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun, man. Yeah, it was fun. Um, no, let, let's do the suicide one later this week if you can. I'm so drunk. <laughs> I'm not drunk enough. I'm going to get hammered. <laughs> Oh, man, my roommates are fucking making noise in the other room. I heard him, like, playing drums and basses and shit, so I think we're about to have ourselves a good time.
Let's go, let's go.